Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those that don't subscribe to Agenda, welcome to the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we did it. We're here. We have crossed the finish line. We broke the banner. Our arms are in the air. We're at the end of season eight. We're at the end of Game of Thrones. All together. No more Game of Thrones. How are you feeling? How are you coping? Do we need to cry? I mean, I truly can't believe it. We often discuss the idea of, you know, going to the end together in terms of finishing out the series, but now that it's here, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this to be done. I'm ready for more more material, more shows, more books that I have, well, one of those I'm guaranteed to have, the other one not so much, but it's still, it's a, it's a weird feeling to have so many years finally accomplished in this second. We're like members of the Night's Watch that were just fighting off, fighting off the Whites, and now our watch has ended. Yeah, just like, okay, the goal of several thousand years is accomplished. So, Vegas? Is that what we do now? I mean, what's, what's left for life? Yeah, Vegas sounds good. Anyway, let's hop into the episode. Before we do so, a little housekeeping. What's going on on Mangum Reads? Mangum Reads, uh, we have had a brief delay in terms of getting out our next episode of covering the fifth season. Uh, a wonderful new science fiction book that, over the course of the last three years, has won the Hugo three times. Um, we're going to do our second part sometime next week and get that out. Uh, what's probably going to be a three or four part series going through what is a fascinatingly complex series of characters in a wonderfully realized world that reminds me of an odd crisscross of Dune meets the road. Um, and yes, it at times is that depressing, but it is an inspired, interesting read and we're having a lot of fun talking about it. Awesome, man. Awesome. And we do have a whiskey on the weekends coming up. We're one weekend away from that. I'm providing the whiskey. How excited are you? Uh, you know, I am always excited for whiskey on the weekends, especially especially when other people are having to make the decisions about what I drink. Um, my prior effort at getting alcohol out to you guys was a tortured enterprise of me doing countless Google searches to, you know, learn what whiskey really was in terms of sending it out because my prior background was pretty limited. So, yes, overjoyed that you're sending me drinks rather than the other way around. It's funny that you say you were Googling what whiskey is, because I believe on that episode, you actually referred to bourbon as whiskey bourbon. I, I did. Um, <laughs> the, the, there are moments of where it becomes really obvious that I don't have the slightest shit of an idea of what I'm talking about. That was one of those moments. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and as far as this podcast goes, this is our last episode, obviously, of a new um, episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, Spencer and I will take a break, obviously. Uh, we may come back with a, a few pods on episodes we really like mm-hmm. um, so just subscribe stay tuned and if new pods up, uh, new if new pods pop up you know uh, join us and if you have any uh, episodes of game of thrones that you would like to hear um a recap on that we have not done upon your rewatch which everybody's doing rewatches right now just hit us up www.mangotalks.com up right hand corner click contact us it will feed right to me not dispenser i do the administrative stuff he's just the talent and we'll schedule something and we'll get it done yeah and if you have any recommendations uh, as we go through our recap whatever else if there's a new show or a full show you want us to start exploring as well that you know fits into a game of thrones mindset or just a show that you particularly enjoyed we are happy to entertain the idea and happy to try out a new show heck of a segue spencer because i was going to talk about as we start the episode, season eight, episode six, aptly named The Iron Throne, the opening commercial that HBO does. So if you watch this on HBO Go or now, um, they always have an opening commercial before every episode. Mm-hmm. 
And this one was hilarious because it is absolutely throwing everything into the commercial. <laughs> we have other begging things. Folks, begging folks not to cancel their subscription. It was literally every active HBO show and all of the upcoming movies that HBO makes and miniseries. It was jam-packed. And admittedly, it was wonderful content. It is a HBO makes some incredible shows, both material they've already done and things they're looking for the future. But as you said, there was definitely a tone of desperation behind this advertisement. And there were three there that I thought would be interesting for a potential future podcast. Succession, mm-hmm. um, Westworld, obviously, we've talked about that. And then the new, uh, a new show called Avenue 5 hmm. with Hugh Laurie that looked pretty interesting to me. So... More to come on that, but maybe one of those. Um, If you're interested in, let us know and we'll we'll consider it. You know, I was thinking with you being such a diehard Deadwood fan that you were going to plug the Deadwood movie coming out and recommend that we go through that series again, but it was not to be. Eh, I like Deadwood. I'm a little skeptical about the the movie just because it's so many years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I have hopes, though. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. it. It was such a good show. It had such a lack of resolution that I have hopes that it can stick a landing. But as you said, when you were removed by, what has it been? It's been more than a decade now, right? Since Deadwood was on. It it is hard to recapture that kind of fire in a bottle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I feel like if we did Deadwood, um, I would have to like go under a pseudonym because of just how blue it is. (laughs) We We can do a parent warning before every episode that there is no way we can do best quotes Without something bleeding in. Oh my god. You actually just got me really excited. Best quotes on Deadwood? Come oh. on. How fun would that be? Just Al oh. Swergen says something. Just do that every episode. Oh, that would be great. Okay, well back to the issue at hand. And that is the resolution of Game of Thrones in this last episode. We start with the previously on in the opening credits. So the previously on is really just about the last episode. They don't yeah. do anything else. Um, and Spencer, I'm so excited to announce the opening credits did change. Did they? I didn't notice. Absolutely. So the the scene that goes like the floor is being created up to the Iron Throne. Yeah. Uh, all, all season, so for the first five episodes, there was a Lannister sigil above the Iron Throne. I did not notice this, sir. For this one, uh, there was no Lannister sigil. It was just empty. Huh, okay. I was I was about to complain there weren't enough changes. I still say there weren't enough significant changes, but that is something. Yep, it was a change. Um, we start in King's Landing. And Tyrion is walking through the wreckage. This is the second time he's had to do this as Danny's hand. The first time, of course, being Field of Fire 2.0 when he's looking at the Lannister army who has been decimated. Um, in King's Landing, he sees burned children. Literally, they showed us burned children, which was yeah. kind of tough. Um, bodies that had been turned to dust. And then really haunting image of one really badly burned man just walking seemingly to nowhere. Uh, Davos and John are behind him. And shit on the plot if you want. And we're probably going to do some of it. Uh, <laughs> it just, just throw a dart at a message board and you will find more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did spend a ton of money burning this setup. Yeah. And, and this opening like 12 minutes of this episode is very powerful. I mean, I think this is maybe one of the longest stretches in the show of where there actually is just no music whatsoever. It is relying entirely on the visuals and the reactions of the characters. And it is powerful and haunting. This is the Game of Thrones equivalent of somebody walking through Me Lai. And it is stark and terrible in a way they want it to be. And I, I think it's a success for this opening part. Yeah, I agree. Tyrion walks up to the daughter-mother combo that Arya interacted with last episode um, that ultimately got burned. Um, and then Tyrion sort of ominously says he needs to walk on further. And Jon says it's not safe, and Tyrion just says, nope, I'm going alone. 
Mm-hmm. Cut to Grey Worm. Oh my God, Grey Worm is at an eleven this episode. Yeah. He has Lannister soldiers on their knees, and he sentenced them to die. Um, in comes John. Grey Worm. It's over. These men are prisoners. It's not over until the Queen's enemies are defeated. And then Davos, well, he's just the voice of reason always. How much more defeated do you want them to be? They're on their knees. Might be, a be, might be a best line nomination right there. That's a good line. That's very good. Um, he, Grey Worm says they're breathing, and Davos still trying to make a connection with Grey Worm. He says, look around you, friend. We won. And Grey Worm really telling here says, I obey my queen's commands, not yours. And John is perplexed, perplexed by this. Sorry. He says, well, what are the Queen's commands? And Grey Worm lets it slip. Uh, the commands from Danny are still to kill all Lannister soldiers or anyone who had followed Cersei. Which is a terrifyingly broad decree that can apply to essentially anyone that has been south of the neck for the last while. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's pretty tough. Um then John and Grey Worm start to face off. I want my fight, Spencer. You don't get your fight, sir. You have no fight this episode between damn these it, two. Damn it, damn it, damn it. I wanted John v. Grey Worm. Oh, man, that, that would be my game ball. I mean, credit to the Northerners that are with him. When Moment John represents that he's going to make an issue of this, they got their swords out and are ready to go, even though it's basically suicidal. Unfortunately, you don't get your fight. No, they were much more unsullied. But yeah, shout out to the Northerners. They were ready to go down with their, with their king. Um, John and Davos walk off to see the Queen, and Grey Worm systematically kills the Lannister soldiers. One at a time, personally slitting their throats. Don't tell me this isn't personal for him, that he's just obeying orders. Whew, tough. Uh, Tyrion is now in what's left of the Red Keep. He's walking across the floor with the Westeros map on it. Um, he walks past the wrought iron uh, Lannister sigil, which we've been seeing since, uh, I think, season two. Yeah. And I believe that that was in the Tower of the Hand, which in the show has been burned, but in the, uh, or no, sorry, in the books, books has been burned down. In the show, it only got burned last episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it was Cersei that burned it with wildfire after her father was killed there in the books. Indeed, um, they take a he takes a torch and he walks below and he comes upon a pile of rocks. He moves like two, um, and sees <laughs> Jamie and Cersei's uh, not clearly as caved in as I expected faces. Yeah, they, they they were kind of really oddly pristine in death, but I you know I get they want to make this a kind of both terrible, both beautiful and terrible scene as Tyrion is discovering this. Well, for the fans who are complaining, let's say they showed you just two caved-in skulls, and Tyrion started crying. Well, then the fandom would say, well, how does he know that's Jamie and Cersei? They're wearing their clothes. They're in the right spot. He's smart and can deduce things occasionally, but. You know, it, they, they showed us, and it was, again, the music's now kicking in. It's a, t- it's a tender scene. And this is the first of several moments in this episode of when Tyrion's going into this. I assumed the writers would do a dumber thing than they did. Than they did of where I was really worried as this was building up that he was going to find the two, the two of them, or at least one of them, still alive. Oh, God, that would have been terrible. That didn't even cross my mind. Um, but they did give Peter Dinklage a lot of... Um really sincere moments to yeah. to flex his acting. Um, definitely needs an Emmy nod for uh, Best Supporting Actor. He, he did wonderfully this episode. He had a, I think he was really the heart of this episode to kept it going with some wonderful lines and some wonderful scenes. And this was the first of several to come. Yep. So he starts beating the rock down on other rocks near um, Jamie and Cersei's dead body. And the Reigns of Castamere starts playing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... I thought about this, Spencer. What do you think he's so upset about? I have a theory, but I'd like to hear yours. 
I assume, I, I assumed at the time, and that's what I'll just represent, that it was just the loss of family, that he is truly a Lannister alone in the world, largely, maybe he can just say, as a result of his own decisions, that he picked a horse that he knew would threaten his family, and he's done everything in his power to avoid that outcome, everything to move things away from what quite possible was inevitable in terms of the side that he has picked. And now he's just seeing all of those plans, all of those efforts, all of that bandying around that led, that delayed or prevented, or in some ways made the war, the, war, the war harder just so he could avoid this loss both to his family and people of King's Landing, fail. That everything he's aspired to for a couple seasons in terms of directing Danny to a path that would allow him to bring about a new future, but with his family still alive in it and without the carnage that could come with conquering, come to naught. And I, I, I think that's what he's responding to there. Yeah, I'm kind of the same vein. I mean, my thought was, at this point, he thinks that House Lannister is no more. Because um, he can't suspect that he's going to live. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as he saw what Danny was doing, I think in his mind, he said he's going to turn on her. And he can't imagine that Danny's hand turning on her is going to result in Danny telling her hand, uh, yeah, just uh, yeah, just take a retirement. <laughs> like, not going to work. So I yeah. think here he he's sad because he thinks that his, his house is over. Uh, he, he, we also saw in the last episode that he, when, the moment he let Jamie go, he assumed he was going to die. That he assumed that he was signing his own death warrant at that point. With only the off chance that if Jamie successfully pulls off the plan that he's worked out, maybe Danny will show mercy. That has not come to fruition, so he is fully expecting that House Lannister has died previously and he, the last tortured remnant of it, will be the, now the last to go. So, aside, um, when you consider how this ends, how hilarious is it that Tywin's single focus was the future of House Lannister, and the only one saving it from ruin is Tyrion? As he's is, the last Lannister, as is said in the books by the one fat Lannister, Tywin's Tywin's uh, younger sister. Tyrion is truly Tywin's heir. The show has occasionally forgotten that and had Tyrion do some very much boneheaded moves the last season, but. This ends with Tyrion being the representative of his house that keeps the house going to the future in the way that Tywin wanted. So, okay, legacy is accomplished. Tywin's dreams have succeeded. Kinda. Now we cut back to the Third Reich, uh, and Danny's army is assemble- assembled in front of a large staircase. Um, I don't know where this is. I have no idea, but they found a large staircase. Uh, it's, it's out of a certain movie from the 1930s. Um, yeah, it, yeah, I don't know where this staircase was assumed, and I don't know how they got this many people to put on Unsullied and Dothraki costumes to make that, this many of them still present, but it makes for a hell of a visual. It does indeed, and uh, Amelia Clark has said that before filming the scene, she actually did look at videos of Hitler Yeah, and try to... <laughs> tried to uh, uh, emulate that. So any of the Dandy fans still out there, uh, you can get off that ship. Um, Grey Worm is at the top of the stairs. Um, John walks up. Damn it, I want my fight, Spencer. You will never, ever get your fight, sir. They've decided no fight for you. You've already had Clegane Bowl. There shall be no more epic fights this season. Uh, well, I'm going to start a petition then. Redo it so that we can have Grey Worm be John. People are already trying, sir. It's got more than a million signatures. It still is not going to happen. God, what a lame thing to be doing. Mm. Um, we hear Drogon fly in. Danny walks out, and there's this beautiful shot of Drogon's wings flapping behind her. So it gives the impression that Danny has dragon wings. Very beautiful shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny looks out at her army. The Dothraki are hooting and hollering, having a good old time. This is what they came to Westeros for. They just pillaged the city. Uh, she speaks Dothraki to them. She says they kept their promise to her, killed her enemies, tore down their homes, gave her the Seven Kingdoms, 
At this, Drogon screams. Then she switches to Valerian. Um, little Pete Buttigieg there, just switching back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, kills Grey Worm. Uh, or no, no. Uh, <laughs> you, you wish. I actually said this. Kills Grey What am I trying to say here? This is so... Like, kills Grey Worm with pride. <laughs> with accomplishment and rewards and honor. She just slays him. My, my Freudian notes here. Now she asks Grey Worm to come forward and she names him commander of her forces, the queen's master of war. Grey Worm smiles, but he doesn't seem overly excited and the Unsullied stomp their spears. Yeah. Then she addresses the Unsullied, uh, has this really cringy rallying cry that they were once slaves, but they are now liberators. They liberated the people of King's Landing from the grip of a tyrant. Yeah, they're, they're clearly aspiring to the same visuals and speeches of, of Triumph of the Will, but it... You know, she's hitting some notes, not necessarily the most, most powerful ones, but she's getting them across. Yeah, I agreed. Um, but she says, but the war is not over. We will not lay down our spears until we have liberated all the people of the world. From Winterfell to Dorne, from Lannisport to Carth, from the Summer Isles to the Jade Sea. Mm-hmm. Now, this especially elicits a solemn look between Tyrion and Jon. The Dothraki keep um, hooting and hollering. The um, Unsullied pound their spears. Drogon roars, Arya watches. Question. Just, I don't even know why I'm asking this question necessarily anymore, but are we to assume that everyone here understands her? I mean, she, she for one, jumps between two languages. I mean, she starts in Dothraki and then she goes to Valerian. Do, are we to assume that the Dothraki are understanding the Valerian parts, the Unsullied are understanding the Dothraki parts, or that Tyrion or Jon have the slightest fucking clue what she just said? Uh, Tyrion understands Valerian. Yeah. Um, and he's been learning Dothraki. I don't think John knows what she's saying, but I think he sees that it's a sort of rallying cry. And then he probably hears the key word Winterfell, Dorne, Landisport, you know, like he yeah. hears those. He's getting the high points. Right. Um, but no, to your to your question, I obviously don't think that the Dothraki know Valerian or that the Unsullied know Dothraki. But, you know, they're representing. They want this to be a good mo- moment for their queen. And as, as, as you said, uh, if they can't understand literally the words, they're probably getting the tone of voice. Indeed. Uh, John watches Tyrion walk up to Danny, who's still looking over her army. Danny looks down at Tyrion and says, You freed your brother. You committed treason. Uh, Tyrion very solemnly looks up and says, I freed my brother, and you slaughtered a city. Tyrion takes the hand of the Queen Emblem off and tosses it down the stairs. Fucking boss move there from Tyrion. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's one that the Unsullied immediately recognize as, Okay, so you want us to kill him now or later? Yep. They stop pounding their spears. Which is really haunting. The Unsullied yeah. pounding their spears is a really good, like, sort of theatrical effect. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny looks at Tyrion and instructs the Unsullied to take him. Tyrion looks at John as he's escorted out. John seems really messed up here. Uh, he looks at Danny. Danny's theme starts to play. Shout out Raymond Jwaldi. She walks out. John watches her, and then he sees Arya. Arya not necessarily just sees Arya. Arya appears behind him. Arya's stealthing tendencies have just continued to improve over the course of this season. Yeah, I mean, Arya at this point, to John has to just be a superhero. He's like, <laughs> yeah. what the hell are you doing here? Like, and you survived it? Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of feel like he's just going to be like out north of the wall in 10 years. And he's just like at a campfire. Torment's telling a story about like fucking a bear. <laughs> As he does. And then Arya just walks up. Hello, brother. <laughs> to, to which by that point, John's just gotten so jaded and used to it. He's like, hey, Arya, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> How's wet? How's the West? Yeah, cool. Have, have some bear. <laughs> What's west of Westeros? Um, he, uh, he looks at Arya and says, what are you doing here? What happened? She says, I came to kill Cersei. Your queen got her first. 
She's everyone's queen now. Try telling Sansa. Interesting back and forth here because Danny specifically said she was going to liberate the people of Winterfell. She and did. Arya is directly telling Jon there will be another war because Sansa is not going to submit to this queen. Yeah, and this is the first of a couple moments for John of where I do not get how willfully ignorant, naive, and just starstruck John is throughout the course of this episode. That so many people need to explain to him how bad Danny is, which should be readily apparent by the little stroll he just did through King's Landing. Do you really not are you really surprised? I mean they have they they have been consistent that John is a dunce. No, I am surprised. I mean, we'll discuss this when we get a little bit farther on, but John's already had the lesson of that love is the death of duty and has willingly done the thing that killed the love for the sake of duty before. He did it with Ygritte, and I believed their relationship a hell of a lot more than I believed uh, John and Danny. Um, so, no, I, I don't find this. Um, I don't like this, and I don't find it reasonable for what they're doing with John. It feels like they're moving back his character growth quite a bit. Eh, all right, I disagree there. We'll talk about it later. And John will always be a threat. Uh, Arya reminds John that he'll always be a threat. Um, so basically like, Hey John, like keep following your queen if you want to, but eventually she'll get to you. Mm-hmm. Then we have a, go ahead. No, no, you're good. You're good. Then we have an absolutely great scene with John visiting Tyrion. Wonderful scene. Wonderful scene. Great. Wonderfully written. Great lines throughout. Tyrion is being held prisoner. John gives up his sword and walks in. Tyrion, <laughs> did you bring any wine? <laughs> Tyrion Priorities. is consistent. When he's a prisoner, he wants to drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, not surprisingly, John didn't bring any. Um, John doesn't seem like a flask guy. He's not like a flask guy. He also seems like kind of like a, cr- a crappy house guest. I mean, he, he's not the kind of person that's going to bring a gift with him when he goes into somebody else's home or jail cell. You know, John, that's just rude. Yep. Tyrion thanks him for coming and points out that Danny doesn't keep prisoners long. That is true. Um, that's true. I, I, you know, if Danny had stayed alive, I don't feel like Tyrion would have been alive for very long. I'm kind of amazed that Tyrion's still alive. I thought she would have just gone with the visual and just burned him in front of the army right then and there. Uh, I don't know what she's necessarily waiting for. Ooh, that would have been a tough scene. Yeah. Um, Great quote here from Tyrion. Um, I nominate it for line of the episode. I suppose there's a crude sort of justice. I betrayed my closest friend and watched him burn. Now Varys' ashes can tell my ashes. See, I told you. I really like that line. And I... I, in some ways, want that to happen, because good lord had Varys told him. Tyrion says John knows where he's going, um, and asks if there's life after death. Second time now, John has said, not that I've seen. Uh, mm-hmm. John's been pretty clear about this. I died, I died. <laughs> there was nothing there. Um, Tyrion says he should be thankful, uh, and he kind of hints that if there was an afterlife, he probably wouldn't fare very well, yeah. uh, which I disagree with wholeheartedly. This Well, again, at this point, he sees everything he's aspired to just come down to flaming ruin. He's pretty hard on himself due to this just mag... The scale of the failure that is before him. Yeah, Tyrion says he betrayed the queen, but he'd do it again now that he's seen what he's seen. He points out that he chose his own fate, but the people of King's Landing did not. Again, so to your point, he's having to spell this out for John. I think at this point, he kind of understands John hasn't flipped. Yeah, and the fact that John in the next scene actually tries to defend Danny's decision in some way and even pretend to represent he would have done the same thing is just ludicrous. I mean, Tyrion's having to explain to John that mass murder is unforgivable and that you can't trust or follow this woman anymore because there's you've given, given all evidence to believe she'll do it again. But well, John 
really needs to be led by the nose to this point, apparently. And I think he sh- he would because John. I mean, you know, when he's he bends the knee or he pledges an oath to something, it's very hard to get him to break it. Um, and I think that here he's still processing. Uh, and in some ways, it's very human. I mean, he went into this saying, Danny's my queen. She's going to fix the world. Everything's going to be great. And he's seen this atrocity happen. And John's not a quick decision guy. I mean, he, he has to sit and stew and think and has to people have to sort of counsel him. And I think that that's what's going on here. I do think he would have got to it on his own. But, I mean, we're led to believe here that this is just hours after, you know, uh, which is also kind of an open question. I'm assuming it's just a few hours after. So, yeah, in my mind, I think this makes sense. Um, but it does – it is interesting to me that Tyrion is the one that has to to have this conversation with him. Yeah, and it makes for some wonderful lines. It makes for some wonderful moments. But, again, we have seen John already learn this lesson before. He's been willing to sacrifice love for the sake of duty, for the sake of the, of the good and protecting the realm. Um, and that was over just, you know, wildlings invading from the north rather than literal the single worst act that's ever been committed in the history of Westeros and a woman that maybe Tyrion explained or maybe just deduced from the details who's just proposed doing so again throughout all of the world. Yeah, I don't... I, I mean, it, but in defense, like, it, it, as a sort of counter to your point, it's not like he takes a very long time to figure this out. No. Like, I mean, Tyrion, Tyrion's able to flip him in about two minutes. And I, in some ways, would have accepted this more if we had some inclination that John already had these thoughts himself. But he has to, given those probably unsullied listening at the door, represent that he hasn't made that call yet. That he has to, in some ways, put on a bit of a shield, a little bit of cover, so that he can get close to actually do this. I would have liked, again, if we'd just seen a little bit more character growth from John over the course of eight seasons, rather than, again, people having to explain to him, leading him by the nose, that the things you have to do from duty suck every now and then. He's Man. already learned that lesson. And he already knows. He's having, the, in the middle of this conversation, he throws out, which we can get to, Master Eamon's quote. So it's like, yeah, yeah you're saying they have to lead him, but it's not a hell of a lot of leading. I mean, John gets there no. pretty quick. Um, John I, says I, he can't justify what happened and he won't try, yeah. but the war is over now. Is it? Yeah. When you heard her talking to her soldiers, did she sound like someone who was done fighting? <laughs> yeah. Great line. No. Great line. Great line. Um, Again, John, John's proper response there was, yeah, I actually kind of fell asleep in language classes, so I didn't really understand them. But yeah, the, the, the tones and tenor of her voice sounded bad. Well, you can draw the parallel there to Hitler, right? Because like I think the, when the folks in the 30s and 40s were watching television and saw the clips of, uh, of Hitler, we didn't understand German, but I had a sense that nothing good was going to happen. Right? If, triumph, if Triumph of Will ran in you know, Britain or the United States and people were watching that, probably they could pick up, okay... This guy seems really passionate about something, and there are a lot of militaristic elements. Maybe I should raise some concerns before we go talk at Munich. <laughs> Tyrion says she liberated the people of Slaver's Bay, she liberated the people of King's Landing, and she'll go on liberating until the people of the world are free, and until the people, uh, and then she rules them all. Until the people of the world are free, and she rules them all. Yeah. John kind of puts up a little bit of fight here. He says, "Well, you counseled her." <laughs> Tyrion says, "Yeah, I did uh, until now, um, but Varys was right. He was wrong." He said it was his own vanity to think that he could change who she is. Our queen's nature is fire and blood. John doesn't like this. Uh, no, he doesn't. Right there all. with him. Yeah, because, I mean, of what he knows about himself. He says, you think our house words are stamped on our bodies when we are born, and that's who we are, then I'd be fire and blood too. She's not her father, no more than you are Tywin Lannister. And Tyrion sidesteps this and delivers a death blow in this conversation. Yeah. My father was an evil man. My sister was an evil woman pile up all the bodies of all the people they ever killed there still won't be half as many as our beautiful queen slaughtered in a single day 
I really like that Tyrion is probably the only person in this episode that is really directly confronting how incredibly evil the acts of Danny were in the last episode. A lot of the people dodge it. Danny just kind of rebuffs even questioning about it. But I love Tyrion's lines of just going into, no, 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 no. Don't try to in any way excuse or justify this. Nothing compares to what we just saw last episode. Yeah, and I love that he gives that voice. Um, yeah. Because somebody had to, right? Some, clearly. Um, uh, it was either going to be him or maybe Davos. But uh, John says she had no choice. Tyrion calls bullshit on that. Yeah. Uh, John says, well, it's easy to judge when you aren't fighting. And Tyrion said, okay, well, how about Shut this? Up. Um, would you have done it? You've been up there on a dragon's back. You've had that power. Would you have burned the city down? I don't know. Yes, you do. You won't say because you don't want to betray her, but you know. It doesn't matter what I do. It matters more than anything. Like Tyrion here. I love that line, but it's still Tyrion is still thinking that somehow John's probably going to rule. Um, then Tyrion ticks through Danny's Mad Queen resume. Um, we've got, um, uh, I think, three three positions ago, murdering the, sl- the slavers of Astapor, mm-hmm. uh, crucifying the Myrnese nobles, burn the Dothraki Khals. Quote, everywhere she goes, evil men die, and we cheer for her. And she grows more powerful and more sure that she is right. She believes her destiny is to build a better world for everyone. If you believe that, if you truly believed it, would you kill anyone who stood between you and paradise? It's a wonderful line, and I feel like in some ways these lines and like Danny's speech to the Unsullied Dothraki might have been more effective if they'd been before the attack on King's Landing. If they'd been a degree of foreshadowing and build-up of the tension to that moment so that I found it more believable when it happened. They're wonderful lines and they're wonderful scenes in terms of setting up her motivations and her reasoning, but they're post-dating their we're at 11 kind of act. When really I, I needed the kind of five to six to seven build up that would have made it a little bit work better for me. But they're great lines in terms of really going into why Danny feels, in some ways, justified and entitled to be Lord of the World. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've said it every episode uh, of this season. I'll say it again. It's rushed. Yeah. We can always say that. Yes, it's rushed. With that being said, uh, I'm still going to try to talk about what I liked or didn't like the episode without that sort of context because I know it was going to be rushed we all knew it was going to be rushed Um, and I think the writing in this episode is really good Mm -hmm. Uh, it took me a hell of a long time to write the notes on this because it's such a dialogue heavy episode there's really no action at all Um, but anyway back to back to this Uh, Tyrion acknowledges that Jon loves her Tyrion says he loves her too but not as successfully as Jon score one in the victory column for me you got it it. you called had romantic affections for Danny. You've been calling that for like three friggin' seasons, and I give you credit. They've finally provided confirmation to that theory that that was at least part of his motivations. And it offers a bit of rationale about why these two have gone as far as they have, is that they were quite literally blinded by love. Well, not literally, metaphorically blinded by love in terms of their devotion to her and willingness to overlook some concerns and tendencies that might have given them a hint of what she was capable of. Sorry, I was just taking my victory lap. I'm a little <laughs> Enjoy your lap, have a drink. You've earned it. You've been calling this for a while in a way I openly questioned and doubted you about. Yep. Um, Tyrion says he believed in her. Um, love is more powerful than reason. Look at my brother. John fires back. Love is the death of duty. Tyrion's so funny. He said, did you just come up with that? Like, uh, <laughs> Whoa, it's not a, you're not a poet. Uh, yeah. Samuel Tarly, shout out Samuel Tarly, told John. 
It, it is a great line. It is one of the resonating lines of the series. Uh, and I love that Tyrion just immediately looks at John and says, that's not you. No way you just came up with that right now. Yeah, that's obviously a potential line of the episode. Um, John says, Master, Maester Eamon said it yeah, a long time ago. And then Tyrion responds, sometimes duty is the death of love. Now he's going in for the kill. He's getting to his yeah. point. You are the shield that guards the realms of men. He says, John has always tried to protect people. He asked him, who is the most dangerous person now? Tyrion says it's a terrible thing what he's asking him to do. But the John is, will always be in danger. John asserts that she's the queen. It's her choice. If she wants to kill me, she can kill me. Um, he touches Tyrion on the shoulder and says he's sorry it came to this. Tyrion, and your sisters? Do you see them bending the knee? It, Great point. It is. And do you think that's finally the point that gets John over the hump? I think he was already there. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm being generous, but you, you, his body language throughout all of this. I mean, even when he, and, you know, Kit Harrington, I think he probably stayed out of the bar the, the night before. <laughs> we talked about that. This one, because it's good acting here. I mean, as he as he's delivering these lines, he he's saying them and he's having the body language that portrays that he doesn't really believe what he's saying. Yeah, and there's de- they're definitely wanting to represent that, that there's a war inside him as to his feelings of duty and love and loyalty for Danny uh, versus what he knows is right. Uh, I have some qualms and concerns about John not being farther along that decision-making and needing to be convinced of it. As you said, maybe he would have reached there eventually. And I feel like that they're indicating in this scene that John hadn't reached the decision until it became a personal threat to his family. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope he wouldn't be just that self-focused, but I think they're kind of hinting that when this is the moment that John finally just doesn't have a response to. Well, he says, my sisters will be loyal to the throne or to the queen. Um, and he says, um, Tyrion says, why do you think Sansa told me the truth about you? She doesn't want Danny to be queen. John snaps. She doesn't get to choose Tyrion. No, but you do. And you have to choose now. Very good point. Yeah, John John exits stage left, unsullied at the door as we predicted, so, yeah. Yeah, John walks into a large courtyard uh, ahead of the Red Keep. What looks like a big-ass pile of rubble stirs, and it's actually Drogon. And I took this to mean Drogon was clearly protecting Danny. Danny yeah. was inside. And he sniffs John, the Targ smell checks out, um, and he lets John pass. Now, this is really reinforcing to me that John is the only possible person who can do this. Because who else could who else could get past Drogon to even get to her? Uh, no one. And I mean, Danny is right now in a. I clearly agree with you. That is the reason Drogon is there. She is in the middle of a castle that she just conquered in a city that she just laid waste to. This is still a threatening place for her. Drogon is clearly intending nobody comes in after me because otherwise she'd have other guards there to protect her. So I agree with you that the only person that could get any degree of pass to make it into this moment would be Jon. Because otherwise, Drogon was probably under pretty clear orders incinerate anybody that tries. Yep. I mean, maybe Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion did have a, a touching moment with Rhaegal and Viserion. Um, nah. But he's never nah. never dealt with Drogon. And even if he got past them, I don't think he could actually get physically close enough to Danny to do it. Yeah. Um, Danny is in what's left of the throne room, staring at the Iron Throne. Answers a question I had in the last pod, uh, if the Iron Throne still existed. Um, this is a scene we've been wa- waiting for. Because it was foreshadowed in the House of the Undying, um, you've been calling two. that we're going to see. You've been calling that we're going to see it. You were right. 
Yeah, I, I, I very got, much got to see the prophecy fulfilled of her approaching the ruined, ruined uh, Red Keep, the, th the, the um, Iron Throne with snow or ash. You think this is ash or snow that's falling right now? I, I, I kind of got mixed feelings, mixed, mixed feelings on the time this episode was done. Uh, it's starting to look like snow to me. Yeah, I think it started ash, but we've actually transitioned to snow because it is still winter. And then she approaches the Iron Throne, snow upon it. She turns around. And there's the wall before her to walk through into what is clearly the afterlife. And we got to see that prophecy fulfilled in a way that Danny didn't see coming because that is the nature of prophecy. But I kind of enjoyed that the show has given us a bit of a taste of the book's love of prophecy over the course of these last few episodes. Completely agree. Danny walks up and touches the throne. A very dark version of her theme starts to play. In the back, we see a silhouette emerge, and it's John. He's in the background. Danny turns to look at him. Um, Danny talks uh, and says that her brother told her the throne was made up of a thousand swords from Aegon's fallen enemies. She says that in the mind of a little girl that can't count to 20, the chair should be much higher. Shout out to the books. I loved that they did this because in the books, the Iron Throne looks nothing like the show version. It actually is what Danny describes in the books. It's, yeah. you know, two stories high and you have to climb up it and it's a whole thing. Yeah, as I said, the Iron Throne in the books is literally all of the swords from the houses of the Gardeners and the Lannisters from, that survived the Battle the, the, uh, Field of Fire. The battle Field of Fire and uh, thrown together into a pile that Drogon then, that not Drogon, Balerion, blew upon and put this massive, twisted, gnarled edifice of a chair that is just, it looks as dangerous as it is impressive. So, yeah, Google artist renditions of that it is a chair that just towers like a couple stories in the air kind of thing <laughs> i like that the the showrunners are giving a shout out to the fact that they created an iron throne that really isn't like the iron throne. <laughs> the, the iron throne we have now reflects the budget that season one had <laughs> john is in no mood to talk about furniture he says i saw them executing lannister prisoners in the street they said they were acting on your orders danny said it was necessary john asked danny if she's actually looked at the destruction she caused have you been down there his little children have been burned. Danny blames Cersei, weirdly enough. Um, and John, John asks about Tyrion. So he's he realizes she's not going to budge on the sort of you did a bad thing by killing all the people in King's Landing. I mean, now he wants to try to save Tyrion. Which I get that he would make that transition because clearly Danny's not of a mind to even discuss this. But I just wish we'd had some moment or scene of somebody confronting Danny and her trying to offer some degree of explanation or thought process for why she did what she did. It's so off-the-charts evil kind of act and unexpected that I just wanted a conversation briefly of Danny trying to offer even the slightest hint of an attempt explaining what she did. Because otherwise it just comes across as her just being in the state of delusional megalomania, which I guess is what they're going for. Well, that, that's what you just got. I mean, John yeah. confronted her and she said... Yeah, I had to do it. Cersei made me do it. I think if you got a longer scene and maybe a different character, say a Tyrion or maybe even a Grey Worm, yeah. confronting her, I don't think you'd get a different answer. This is how she's justified it. Which is not even in my mind an attempt at a justification. If she has gone that far down the bend that she feels like that is a justification for unleashing attacks on the people of King's Landing, I mean... I feel like so several of the characters in this episode are acting as if Danny just burned the Red Keep and ordered the executions of Cersei and part of the Lannister army. A certainly questionable, not even questionable, an immoral act, but one that at least could be tied to reality. Her incinerating all of the people of King's Landing, essentially? I don't know why anyone is even, even hinting to represent in their minds that Danny is somebody they can still trust or follow. Well, this goes back to um, Tyrion's conversation with Danny. 
last episode where he said, do you expect him? You can't expect him to all be heroes. And that's what I said. That's what I offer to you, Spencer is like, this lady has an all powerful nuclear weapon at her disposal. She's shown that she'll use it to anyone who remotely offends her. And now she has an army in the city and no, nobody opposing her. I don't, I don't think you're going to get a lot of people standing up and saying, okay, you did this wrong. I think they're going to bend the knee because they're fucking terrified. Even after she's gone, we get people at the king, at the uh, the great the great council defending her rights and attacking John for what he did. Uh, I've got of, I've got thoughts on that. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get there. Um, Cersei says that he conspired behind her back with her enemies and asked John how he deals with people who do the same. She sounded a lot like Cersei here uh, when Cersei was talking to Jamie last season about what treason is. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of this sort of unbending, you know, you didn't you you did something behind my back, therefore it's treason. Yeah, treason, treason is defiance of my will. That's all it is now. That is the definition we've accepted in this legal lexicon of the Code of Danny. Um, John asked Danny to forgive Tyrion. Tyrion says no, she can't. John even goes so far as to beg her. And she says, we can't hide behind small mercies. The world we need won't be built by men loyal to the world we have. Mm-hmm. John responds, the world we need is a world of mercy. It has to be. Danny said it will be. And she is so nuts. Like Amelia Clark has given some real crazy eyes here. Because John is basically questioning her vision for ruling, and she starts flirting with him. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah, my way of, you know, I think what they're going for in this scene is that she has committed an act in some ways that she can't justify. An act that is in, not in keeping of what she wants of her character, what she wanted to accomplish. And so she has just wrapped herself up in the act to justify it. She has made it her persona, she's made it her goal that anything is justifiable for this. And I think Mary Clark in some ways does this pretty well in terms of acting it, that she is pretty disconnected from reality right now. She has in some ways removed herself from the immoral nature of her acts as a way of trying to cope with them. And as you said, it comes across as really uncomfortable that she is just so blasé and acting like the last seemingly several weeks of their relationship and interactions are just off the table now. That didn't happen. Crazy as um, she smiles and starts talking about how great the world is going to be and how good it's going to be when she's done. John says, how do you know it'll be good? She says, because I know what's good. Uh, what? (laughs) John is trying to give her an out here. John John knows what he's come here to do, but he's still trying to give her some attempt to uh, pull back from the necessity of his actions. And she is not doing that. She is doubling down hard. That's a real tough sell. Like, the world is going to be good because I define what good is. Yeah, and then the follow-up line, what about those who disagree? They don't get to say. <laughs> they don't get to choose. Yeah, Danny makes her move on John. So, th- th- yeah, they're talking about, like, just killing massive amounts of people here and creating a world of fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, Danny thinks it's a time to do a little kissing. Danny moves uh, closer to John, um, asking him to build this new world together with her. Danny's theme is playing in the background. John delivers his last line to Danny ever. You are my queen, now and always. Love plays in the background. That's the theme um, that Raymond Jualdi created for season seven when uh, the boat sex is happening. Really? That, that's the name of that song? Yeah, Love. Yep. I didn't know it. Yep. And John kisses her, and he does kiss her back here, and we hear someone get stabbed. For a second, we're not sure who. Uh, I, I was pretty sure who, but it just didn't yeah. mean the fan reactions. I think some people didn't know. <laughs> no, come on. John has blades. Danny's walking around unarmed. I, I, there should be no doubt in this moment as to who just died. Then Danny pulls back, eyes wide and shocked. She dies, I think, surprised and sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and John clearly got her directly in the heart because it went fast. 
Yeah, you know, and I gotta give... This show has clearly said that essentially a Stark wielding a dagger is the most lethal thing in the world. That it has now killed the friggin' Night King and the ultimate villain of the series and wrapped up two eight-season plots with the skill of a quick dagger under a ribcage. So, credit to daggers. They are what changes the world. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic there. But there is some point, massive I'm... sarcasm here. What do you think? John's going to miss a heart when he's no, right no. next to I, somebody? I, I'm just again, I'm again throwing a bit of shade on the show for wrapping. I mean, Night King was built up for eight seasons and then died to an Arya dagger. Again, it made for an incredible episode, even if it left no resolution to what he was or why he was doing everything else like that. Danny now has built up to this moment in the course of the last episode and a half has betrayed herself as the ultimate evil of the world. And again, this is me complaining about the show being rushed. But in just very quick succession, we get a quick dagger to the dagger under the ribcage, and the plot is resolved. Uh, Nisa, 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 heard of it? I've heard of Nisa, Nisa. I want build up, sir. I'm going to keep complaining about it, whether you want me to or not. Ugh. All right. Well, you can join the forty-seven thousand message boards that say that season is rushed. Drogon comes in. It's interesting to me the timing of when he shows up because I think this shows that Drogon doesn't automatically know when Danny is in danger. No. He doesn't know, okay, this person's... He doesn't know John's intent. All he knows is what Danny's feeling. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as Danny has a sense of danger, Drogon moves in. But it just happens so fast, he can't get there before she's dead. It, it, it's really... It, it's an interesting thing to debate what the kind of telepathic connection they are. It seems like the what they've been going for in the show is that dragons really do have a mental connection to their riders. Similar like the Starks and their direwolves. And as you said, it's not a level of constantly seeing through eyes and knowing what's coming or predicting the future in that respect, but it is definitely an emotional kind of connection. Because the moment Danny gets a bit of a blade under the uh, blade into the uh, heart, Drogon is yelling and swooping and there, but too late to protect her. All right, if we had paused it as soon as Drogon shows up, would you have bet me that Drogon was going to burn John there? Uh, I would have put almost any amount of money you wanted to down on John not surviving that scene. Yep, me too. I would have lost a lot of money. Um, so, Spencer, I um, charge you with this, and I tell our recommend it to our audience. Um, Google uh, Snoop Dogg's reaction to the finale. <laughs> I have not seen this. Because <laughs> Snoop Dogg did like a 30-second like Instagram post of this scene, and it's just him cussing John. This motherfucker killed the queen. Like, he's just going in on John. It's fucking hilarious. Um, and, and begging Drogon to burn John. Drogon mm. um, looks at Danny. Um, a really sad scene where he nudges her, trying to get her to get up. Um, I think we've all seen either movies, and I hope you've never seen it in real life, of you know a dog being next to its dead owner, trying to get it to get up and move. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly what this was. Looks like Drogon's going to kill John. He doesn't. He turns and he burns the throne. Um, now, a lot of people have said that this is cheesy. Um, or why would why would this dragon burn the throne? It doesn't make any sense. To me, those criticisms are folks who probably haven't read the books in detail. Because the books out, they, they make it very clear. You know, there are some similarities, right, between a dire wolf and a dragon. But that stops at intelligence. Dragons yeah. are very, very intelligent. They understand a lot more than you would ever expect them to. And it's clear to me that Drogon loved his mother but knew that her obsession with being queen um ultimately spelled her her death and so he didn't blame john for the death he blamed the chair which i thought look call it hokey if you'd like i think it's it's kind of touching and i i like that drogon in his last scene uh gets to flex his intelligence a little bit 
I'm actually down with you on this. I very much agree that that is the most reasonable interpretation of this. The other theories are that he's given, given John a pass because he's a Targaryen, which I absolutely do not buy. We know from nope, the neither. history of Westeros that dragons eat Targaryens right and friggin' left. Absolutely. Uh, that he gave John a pass because they were buddies. Hell no. Don't nope. buy that. Much obviously closer with Danny. Only had, Really only had a curiosity and vague level of comfort with John, right? Anything closer bond to that. So I think the most reasonable interpretation of this is that, as you said... Dragons are intelligent creatures, and more than anything else, they're also willful creatures. They are independent. The connection they have to their riders is much more of a partnership than it is a master-pet kind of situation. And I agree with you that I think this is Drogon again showing that he is an intelligent, understanding creature, maybe more so than a lot of other characters in this show, that he gets this. He gets that this symbol, the quest for this pointless bit of metal sitting in a ruined castle is what led both my, forgive the term, sir, mother and siblings to their doom. I know you hate the term, but it's probably his perspective on it. Um, and, you know, as much as I want to blame you for what happened, I heard some people try to say that, oh, he didn't know that John did it. Bull fucking shit. He knows John did this. Yes, he did. He, I mean, he was uh, looking right at John, and he yelled at John. He wasn't yeah. happy with him. But, but this he, is. I think ultimately he didn't pass the sentence that this was John committing the crime. No, he blamed what was actually the quest that led her down this evil path. That, from his perspective, they could have just been happy in Essos and had a life. But she desired constantly for this throne and the power that came behind it and led their family to ruin as a result. So I very much buy the kind of poetic interpretation of this scene, of giving Drogon the intelligence and the will and the independent desires and perspectives to make that kind of call. It has a certain effect and similar to, you know, punching the wall rather than punching you. But the fact that after he incinerates the wall, he just focuses dead in on the chair, in my mind, is a very reasonable interpretation for the scene. It's a bit potentially overly poetic, but I like what it develops about Drogon. We've, we've, the show has really expanded on Drogon's character compared to what we got in the books as to his intelligence, as to his perspective, as to his level of caring. And I like we get this conclusion to him. And I really enjoy the visuals of it, too, of the chair melting and flowing down the steps and... Also, particularly Drogon's exit with the music that comes with it as he takes Danny off into the mess. Yeah, and I think you can also uh, probably reasonably assume that Drogon, on some level, was confused or concerned that he was burning the entire city. I mean, this is not something that dragons do on their own. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll burn somebody and eat them. But they don't just go around burning cities for no reason. Mm-hmm. Now, I, we, we don't have any, we have no, uh, like, uh, uh, canon of a dragon just going and burning a city for no reason. I mean, they, they don't do that. So this had to be weird behavior for him. I've had so I was reading some people that were saying that moment that it's a, it's a wonderful visual of when Drogon emerges from the snow and just kind of approaches John who just stands there solidly with no music in the background, a field of white. That separate some people interpret that that Drogon in some ways deduced what John was going to do and gave him a pass. I don't go that far. I Me don't either. think that he was. In some ways, enabling John's willfully enabling John's decision, but I do buy the interpretation as to why he did not incinerate John in this moment and what he focused his rage upon. Yep. Okay. Well, Drogon carries Danny's body off, as you mentioned. Danny's theme plays for the last time. Spencer, where is Drogon going? I, you know, I don't have really the slightest clue. That I've heard some people say, "Well, he's returning to Valeria." It's like, why? He's never been there. He has no hey, caring yeah, about there. Yeah, he has. He's been to Valeria. When has he been to Valeria? When we see um, Jorah and Tyrion... Uh, oh, right, he's flying over it. Yeah. yeah we, we, uh, true, we saw him flying over it. Didn't see him land, didn't see him nest or anything, though. As far, I don't think we have any reason to believe that Valeria is a home to him. 
Um, well, it's the only other place we've seen him other than near Danny or just kind of roaming around near Danny, right? Like, like it just, I, I think the, the reason the fans say that is like, well, that's the only like place that's far off that it seems like he made a decision to get near that we pop- know of. It's possible. It also seems to be the historic origin of where dragons came from, to the best of our knowledge. So maybe there's an instinctual drawback there as well. Um, but I don't it, think he's going there, though. Where do you think? Not, eh, nothing to eat. Stone men, you know, they're eh. they're a bit crunchy. You know, crunchy exterior, chewy center. Bad, bad for the the digestion. I would think. Probably. I think, yeah. I think he's going somewhere where there's goats and sheep. Well, he's taking Danny with him, which implies he is indeed taking her somewhere, or wants something to do with her. Um, but yeah, I think it's a purposeful mystery, and I think it's a mystery the show is purposely left open in terms of Bran's ambiguous lines about how, about his searches oh, yeah. for Drogon afterwards. Yeah, we'll get to that. I found that very interesting. Uh, we get to Tyrion in a cell. How long do you think has passed here? Because I think it's been months. Yeah, th- this seems, I think, probably the largest time jump we've had on the show. Because um, I agree with you. This doesn't seem like a couple weeks sort of thing. That's a couple. That's at least a couple months. Maybe even longer. I mean, yep. I, I mean, we can. I can go into this in one of the book nerd bitching topics when we get to it. But for the historical great councils, they could take like six months to assemble. Yep. These are not quick things. No, I think a long time has passed. And the Unsullied take Tyrion to the Dragon Pit. Love that we have another scene at the Dragon Pit. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, set. I, I love that they got it again. Yeah. I, 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 did they build it up some from last time, too? Because this is actually more impressive than I remember of it. No, it's it's the same, I think. Um, okay. It, it is indeed a beautiful set. Nowhere near the scale of what the Dragon Pit is based on the description of the books, but in terms of what sets they can realistically pick in our world, it is a beautiful room. Yeah, it's probably as close as they can get. Um, it makes sense that they'd be gathered there, and as you've pointed out, this is a great council. And they are assembled there to figure out, as Sansa immediately points out, what to do with Tyrion and Jon, although Jon is not there. I have a theory as to why Grey Worm did not bring Jon there. What is your theory, sir? Because I have serious questions as to why Jon's not even potentially discussed as being in the running right now. Yeah, exactly. That I think that Grey Worm didn't even want to open the door that Jon could be considered for king, so he didn't want to bring him there and have, you know, the Lords of Westeros start rallying behind him. Simply not having him there, you know, sort of takes that off the table, or at least as much as Grey Worm can take it off the table uh, in that moment. So I think it was purposeful. I think he did not um, bring John there because he wanted to make it very clear John is not in the running. I, and I agree as to that interpretation for certainly why Grey Worm would do as he did. I just don't get, I mean, unless this is the thought process that's occurring off camera and just in the heads of the characters, as you described, I don't get why someone, particularly not Sansa or Arya, wouldn't at least propose the idea of, well, John's the legitimate king right now. Yeah, I think it's probably that they know that while they have an army, they probably can't beat the Unsullied. And that would actually, that would cause a war. I mean, even they even said even letting him go free would cause a war. So proposing that he be king, they would have to know, okay, well, now we have to saddle up and deal with the Unsullied. Yeah, and the Dothraki, if the Dothraki haven't fucked off already. I don't I have no idea where the Dothraki are. I would have liked if they at least had that conversation on camera, though. Particularly since we see Sansa threatening with an apparent northern horde that's outside the gates. Apparently. Oh, you keep reading off my notes. I was so excited to get to that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's something I really love. Well, let's get back to it. Uh, Grey Worm says, we decided 
Uh, we decide what we do with our prisoners. And Sansa says, if you look outside the walls of your city, you will find thousands of Northmen who will explain to you how harming Jon Snow is not in your interest. So shout out to Sansa. She got word of what happened. Yeah. And so she she brought Northerners with her. Sansa, unlike all the other characters in the show, knows her history and has gone full Cregan Stark right now for an hour of the wolf kind of moment. And Woo. kudos to her. That is how the North dictates policy on King's Landing. And again, this is why I don't get why she, like, Sansa or Arya or someone on this table is not just pointing out that, hey, we got this letter from Varys saying true heir. Maybe he should get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess you could have gotten those two sentences, but they would have gone quick because. Yeah. That's all it would have said. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's all. That's all it would have been. But I do love that Sansa um, either brought the North or kept the North there. And the, the North are really fired up that John's being held prisoner. I love that. Yeah. Um, Grey Worm says there are un thousands of Unsullied who do actually believe. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to paraphrase this. Uh, don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. The Unsullied don't give a fuck what you yeah. just said, Sansa. The Unsullied has just gone full Praetorian Guard. We're like, we're the military force in Rome right now, sir. Tell us what we want to tell us, but we do what we want. Oh, <laughs> Who's going to tell us no? Good reference, Spencer. Woo, I'm impressed. Yeah. I like that. Um, Yara speaks up and says um, she's not quick to forgive. Now, you pointed this out earlier, that apparently Danny still has some level of support. Um, or at least there are people, uh, lords uh, of Westeros and ladies of Westeros, who are upset about what happened to her. I have a theory here. I think it's because they didn't see it. I mean, Yara didn't actually see what Danny did. She heard about it. And that's very different. I mean, you hear she burned the city. I mean, yeah, you know that's bad. But I have a hard time believing that Yara could have walked through the destruction and still had that perspective. I have a hard time believing that they could have cleaned up that destruction in two months. Uh, well, I mean, she probably didn't take a tour of the city either. Probably not, but, but I, I can see what she's why maybe that she's representing this because she's not as close to it. But I just have a hard time believing that that message wouldn't get out and just spread like wildfire. That this is not this is the thing that just minstrels would seize upon and make even worse than it actually was, rather than the other way around. Well, you also have Yara, you know, who you know the rape and reeve, right? I mean, that's what the iron that's the ironborn way. Now she she called for a change to that, um, but actually going in and destroying a city, it's not. You know, it's as abnormal and alien as it would be for the other lords of Westeros. It's it's less so for the Ironborn. Less so, but I think even them in particular would just see it as wasteful. Not necessarily the, the scale of devastation yeah, destroying it, but there's like, these are legitimate salt wives and slaves you're killing right now, man. Yeah, Bring them home. Danny's not evil. She's a bad steward of resources. There do you go. That's the perspective I want someone to offer in this. <laughs> she says she swore loyalty to Danny and John put a knife through her heart. Sansa says... He put a knife through the heart of a tyrant. Yara calls Cersei a tyrant. Um, question for you. Wouldn't a better argument here um, for Santa just be, you didn't see her burn an entire city for no reason. Like, yeah. like pointing that out as opposed to just calling her a tyrant. I, I want more people pounding that drum, really. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of with you there during this council anyway. Yeah, but yeah, I... I that's the argument she makes, but I agree with you. It would be much more powerful if people really just doubled down heavily on the fact of, wait, 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 there's a reason that there's basically no one in this city right now. Let's talk about how that happened. So, you don't always do my favorite line of the episode, but then I do line of the episode, which usually is different. Mm -hmm. We're coming upon my second favorite line. Well, my first favorite line of the episode. Well, it's time. Really? 
Oh yeah, Yara continues. Let the Unsullied give him what he oh, deserves. Arya, okay. yeah. say another word about killing my brother, and I'll cut your throat. <laughs> yeah, that's on my list of, of, of best line nominees for good reason because it is a very in Arya, very in Arya, very in keeping with Arya line. And it's clear that Arya's reputation has gotten out there because Yara backs up. And I got to tell you this: if I was the other Lords of Westeros, I wouldn't be too happy about Arya being on this stage. I mean, she's fucking nuts. Yeah, I would I mean if I'm the other Lords of Westeros, I'm looking at this going, why is are both Arya and Bran here? Who the hell are these kids that are you know standing up with the rest of the Lords? Also, why is there an uh, why is there a smuggler that smells vaguely of onions? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense either, which he calls out later. Davos calls for a way forward. Tries to call Grey Worm by his Valerian name. Torokonudo? Is that it? <laughs> he no, tries. Torokonudo. Uh, Davos calls for giving the Unsullied the Reach. We need to find a better way. Um, and very, very Unsullied here of Grey Worm to just say, we don't need a payment, we need justice. Jon Snow cannot go free. So getting to your point, of why, why aren't they talking about Jon Snow? Well, I think that Grey Worm took it off the table. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming this was basically like a pre-conversation that happened off camera. Um, that, that's, that's my way of conceptualizing why not more people are talking about this. Uh, yeah. Um, I, you know, and it's a tough part of the plot here. I'm going to devolve into a little bit of complaining. Um, the Unsullied would have killed John. I'm yeah. hearing what he yeah. did. And you know, John just walked out and just went, I put a knife through a heart. Like, you know, he said it immediately. I, I don't know why the Unsullied are in some ways respecting the will of the realm here. They were loyal to Danny, a person who has now been murdered and attempted usurpation from their perspective in the friggin' remains of the Red Keep. They're going hog wild on this issue. They're not letting for someone else to decide for them. Do you think that uh, at least at this point it's a little self-preservation? Because they know, okay, well, I, you know, if I just go I just go off on my own half-cocked and do whatever I want— I may have to fight everybody in Westeros. It, it depends whether I believe there are realistic numbers of Unsullied left or what the show is saying there are numbers of the Unsullied left. Because with what this show is representing in the, you know, the triumph of the will speech that Danny delivers, there's a lot of friggin' Unsullied. And they're essentially, I think you could fairly say, the last remaining organized army of any size left in Westeros. They'd be heavily outnumbered, but in terms of yeah. discipline and capability of having a, a capable organized force already ready to go, they'd be a hard nut to crack. Eh, you, Adorn still has an army that was referenced, um, and then you probably have folks in the Stormlands. Uh, yeah, and then there's probably armies everywhere. We just haven't seen them, and we don't know yeah. how close they really are. Uh, Tyrion points out that Jon Snow's fate is not for Grey Worm to decide, nor is his own fate. Um, his fate is for our king to decide, or our queen. Um, point out the someone on the council. I can't remember who points out we don't have a king. Um, and he's <laughs> Tyrion. Shout out to him. He's the most powerful people in Westeros. Pick one. <laughs> Grey Worm somehow okays this. I'm that way. Yeah. I'm a little. I'm a little weirded out by. Grey Worm is being remarkably magnanimous about just allowing a system of government to come about without them exerting direct will. I mean, like, if I was Grey Worm at this point, when Tyrion turns to him and says, "You don't get to choose," I'm like, "Bullshit! I'm one of the most powerful people in this room right now. I get a seat on this vote." Yeah, I don't think he cares. Um, it's yeah. just not John. That's Snow, the motivation. Not, yeah, it's not John Snow. It's not Tyrion. Um, all time unfounded heat check moment. Um, Levi, if you're listening, this is a Dion Waiters moment right here. Edmure Tully stands up and starts talking about his resume. What the hell are you doing? Uh, I, yeah, 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 this is particularly in the, in, 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 for the sh in the show. This is just meant to be funny because obviously this is just dumb and no one works. And Sansa quickly shuts him up. I'm a little bit disappointed the show has done this kind of disservice to the book Edmure because 
Edmure's a bit of a, a bit of a fool or a little at least gets ahead of himself on his decisions, but he's really a nice guy that means well and really tries harder than anybody else to accomplish good things, even if they aren't always the wise one. So I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed that Edmure's being written off as just a a self-focused fool in moments like this. Eh, I agree. It's different than the books, but mostly consistent with how he's been portrayed yeah, in the show. It is. It is. Um, Sansa with the great line, Uncle, please sit. <laughs> and he, I, I love that when he looks up the other lords, they're all just looking away. No one's meeting his eyes. It's just like... I know. And then the dude doesn't even sit down gracefully. He bangs yeah. his sword. <laughs> so funny. Um, uh, Bronzeon um, says, we have to choose somebody. Um, Samuel Tarley says, why? And he makes the pitch for democracy. This is what book readers, myself and you, have been theorizing for a very long time. And it gets laughed off. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is I, so in keeping with this world. Um, and how we see peasants and the and the sort of upstairs-downstairs relationship. This is one of about three moments in the episode where I was very much worried in the moments they were building up to it that the show was about to do a really dumb thing. And I love that the show laughed at us for that. <laughs> of where democracy would in no way be approved of. They have no concept of it. We're hundreds of years before John Locke can write about this and put this in our friggin' heads in terms of a modern world. So I, I really adore that their immediate response is, Okay, let's bring in the dogs and horses. You're saying they get a vote too? Because that's the perspective of the <laughs> Very funny. And people um, try to complain about consistency by saying, well, why is Yara laughing at this? Um, trying to somehow say the king's moot is democracy. It very much is mm. not. It's a republic. It's where um, the lords, the, the upper class in the, the Iron Islands go to make their decision. It's not everyone in the Iron Islands at the uh, king's moot. No, there's a reason that Yara is really okay with what Tyrion proposes for what's going to be the future um, succession the succession scheme. She's basically just proposing a king a, a king's mood every every single time a king dies. But yeah, I love that inside baseball scene where uh, for the fans where they, they talk about democracy and then laugh about it. Edmure suggests Tyrion wants the crown. He is just so stupid. Edmure doesn't know so anything. Because Tyrion just looks at him like no, and he says he couldn't be a worse choice. Um, now, there are also people complaining about, oh, well, why does Tyrion get a vote? That doesn't make any sense. No, it does. He He's the head of House Lannister, which is the Wardens of the West. Like, he gets a vote. He might be a prisoner, but he's the, he's the head of the Westerlands. Yeah, and it's notable. There's no other, seemingly no other representative from the Westerlands there. Tyrion's basically all they got representing that, that component region of the Seven Kingdoms. And they're going to want that to be a part of the Seven Six Kingdoms going forward. So yeah, yeah. he gets a vote. Um, Tyrion has been thinking obviously because when he gets yeah. teed up for this, he's got a he's got he's an idea. Down. Points out that stories unite people. Quote: There is nothing more powerful in the world than a good story. Nothing to stop it. No enemy can defeat it. And who has a better story than Bran the Broken, the boy who fell from a high tower and lived? He knew he'd never walk again, so he learned to fly. He crossed beyond the wall, a crippled boy, he became the three-eyed raven. He is our memory, the keeper of all our stories. Wars, weddings, births, massacres, famines, our triumphs, our defeats, our past. Who better to lead us into the future? All right, I'm going to finish the scene, and then let's me and you, me and you hash out about yeah. Bran being king. Bran has no interest. This is Sansa. Bran has no interest in ruling. He can't father children. Tyrion points out that's a good thing, because sons of kings aren't so great. Sansa, you should know that. Tyrion pitches basically a republic or a, a, republic or a king's move. Where I, when the king dies, everybody comes up and what, what were you gonna say? I actually have a, I have written out a term for what Tyrion is proposing, but please finish the scene and I'll tell you what I think this form of government is that he's talking about. Is it? Uh, yeah, I'll finish the scene and then I'll give you my guess. Sure. Um, Tyrion asks Bran if he will accept the crown. Uh, Bran says, "Why do you think I came all this way?" Now I'm gonna say it's a. Um, 
a Republican monarchy? Uh, yeah, essentially, yes. I'm going to throw in some extra buzzwords in there, but yeah, he's proposing an oligarchic republic um, in terms of the what's going to decide to elect the republic. Elect Ooh, the that sounds better. Yeah, that uh, sounds better. Because it isn't the—it's not like a Roman, a classic Roman republic or a modern republic in terms of people voting on who the representative is going to be. It is an oligarchic collection of people um, of a certain standing in life that are then voting. So it's an oligarchic republican electoral monarchic life estate. Brandon of House Stark, I say aye. They all go around saying aye. Stark theme plays. Davos, shout out to Davos, very self-aware. I'm not sure I get a vote, but aye. Gets to Sansa. And Sansa, yet another heat check moment. She makes a play for the North. Bran nods. He agrees. Arya is smiling in the background. Okay. All hail Bran the Broken. First of his name. King uh -huh. of the Andals and First Men. King of the Six Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. All hail Bran the Broken. Okay. Now, I could hear from you grumbling. I could hear... Um, there's, there's two things I do not buy. <laughs> we'll go into them. Uh, well, you can, you can either not buy or you cannot like. I think you need to make that distinction. There's... Um, I go ahead. And in terms of the two things, the two things that are I don't is a mix. Is even mixes of don't buy and don't like. One is stronger in one way than the other. One I most don't buy at all is the North getting out that easy. Don't buy that whatsoever. Uh, in terms of a component region of the Seven Kingdoms, at the most destabilized moment in the Seven Kingdoms history, just saying peace out, y'all. We, we get to be a new uh, our own country again. I don't buy at all that that's just done without protest. You've got the friggin' Iron Isles and Dorne there that have made legitimate claims for independence a lot more effectively and a lot more recently than the North had. North basically had Rob kind of flirting with the idea of being the, the, the King of Winter once again, and that really just lasting about a year before he dies. Iron Isles has been borderline independent and rogue for basically ever until people shut them down. Dorne was its own independent nation for like 130 years after Aegon's landing. So, you know, recent enough into the future, that, actually probably even going even more recent than that, really up to, up to about 100 years previously in the past, there might be people still alive that remember the last time Dorne was its own independent region. These two people are sitting there watching the North just casually leave the Seven Kingdoms and just going... Okay, well, we're fine staying here for no apparent reason. If one of the largest regions in the Seven Kingdoms, if one of the Lords Paramount just is allowed to exit, the Seven Kingdoms collapses right here, right now. Because they're going to see that the throne is a wimp noodle that's just going to let anybody go and do what they want. I don't buy this. I don't buy it at all that there's not at least a voice of protest about one a component and founding member of the Seven Kingdoms just exiting. So, okay. first complaint there. Your response. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if it, you were going to have that situation play out where the Seven Kingdoms, Six Kingdoms remain intact, but the North uh, succeeds, the only way you could do that is if a Stark took the throne. So, I think that probably the hesitation from Dorne to question it is, well, of course, I mean, he's going to show preferential treatment to the North. Um, he's a Stark. I do think it's un reasonable that Dorne wouldn't speak up although this is the new prince he probably doesn't have his footing yet he doesn't really participate in this very much other than to say i um i posit to you that maybe the iron islands aren't a part of the six kingdoms uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're still independent no nah, they're saying the six kingdoms they're clearly intending that they're still part of it yar is there vouching for her queen i don't know clearly like she she's not i mean she's not she's still very much a part of uh or, or supporting danny 
she and, and they're saying the six kingdoms of Riverlands there. I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, I, I, you I mean, can say you you can say you think it, but I don't think it's a hundred percent. And I, I mean, if you followed uh, the social media conversations about this, um, you would hear some very smart people uh, who would cover this show uh, also share the opinion that the Iron Islands are actually uh, independent. Now, I dis I disagree. I'm just offering that as another sort of perspective. I, I don't think we can in any way assume that without them saying it or showing it or giving us any inkling to believe that. Um, I think it's something you could just believe or interpret from this moment, but I don't think you don't have to rely on for it. And so I don't I mean even among even other than just those two lords who have strongly independent minded followers, a lot of the other kingdoms are going to basically look at this and go, well, why should we support the Iron Throne then? We don't necessarily want to send taxes back to the Iron Throne. The Iron Throne has no independent power now. The Unsullied aren't going to back you. If you're just letting the North go, why shouldn't we all just go? I don't, I don't accept the idea that you can allow a substantial portion of your realm to go without any voice of second-guessing at all and not have other people ask either why or ask the question why they can't get the same situation. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm sensing a theme in a lot of your criticism of this, this episode is that you want to see the conversations that we all know have happened. I and can't. I can't assume like, that they're happening. I, I'm, I'm, I yeah. I can absolutely assume that someone somewhere questioned why the North <laughs> was able to succeed and they weren't. I am not necessarily surprised this did not come up on the stage, only because this is shit is happening fast. And again, this is a Stark King. Um, are you really surprised that he showed some preferential treatment there? And honestly, let's let's just fucking hit the elephant in the room here yeah the only reason they did this is to give sansa a queen like uh, to give her a crown that's yeah. the only reason that's, that's the only reason some resolution to sansa's character it's the only reason that they did this and i get that and it could work still it could work this is a this could be a fitting resolution that is negotiated in a tortured manner but again this is just the nature of the rest format of the show particularly in this last episode that we don't get the necessary or logical conversations that would happen when somebody proposed that I fully accept a lot of the end and data points the show gives us. They feel and ring true that this would be the resolution of their arcs. But they come across as forced if you don't show the, the lead-up to them that would inevitably happen. Yeah, uh, it's rushed. Got it. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, for... uh, other issue. Brand being king. Go. Well, hold on. Before we get there, um, I would charge you, Spencer, and any other folks listening who think it's preposterous that the Iron Islands are actually independent at the end of this, mm -hmm. uh, to go out and listen to the show-only review of History of Westeros. Okay. Uh, Aziz makes a very compelling case that that is indeed the case, that the Iron Islands are independent, and the six kingdoms now include the Riverlands as an actual kingdom. Uh, so I just didn't want to I didn't want to gloss over that without um, you know pointing out that a show that we like and, and highly respect uh, has a different view there. Now we'll move now, on. Now, and, and I do represent and I actually have listened to that and I understand where he's coming from on it. And from a book from a book perspective in particular, that would make a certain degree of sense for them to refer to these six kingdoms, not including the Iron Isles, in that manner because it's always made a little lack of sense that they refer to the seven kingdoms as seven when there's obviously eight. I just don't. I think you were. In necessarily engaging in filling in the blanks and assumption to make to say that the show is going in that direction when they've given us no clear signs that it is. Okay, you heard it here first. Spencer thinks uh, he's smarter than Aziz. Um, <laughs> Shut up. So we go to, go to Bran now. Um, Bran, not necessarily the first choice. 
no. uh, folks. No. Um, I don't think that anybody was sitting around other than Vegas uh, saying that Bran was going to be king. I've heard a lot of people complain about this. I've heard a lot of people say, well, it wasn't foreshadowed. Um, like everything has to be telegraphed in order for us to believe it. I'm going to tell you this right now. 100% crowded field, big Democratic primary out there. You got Beto, you got Mayor Pete. Uh, man, Biden is in the race. Brand the Broken has my vote. I think he's a great choice for King. I love it. I think he could be a stabilizing force. He's clearly going to be a level-headed ruler. He has no, I mean, other than being a Stark, which, you know, we know how that allegiance is. I don't think he would be completely unreasonable mm -hmm. uh, with his allegiance to the North. Um, I think he's going to be a great ruler. I love it. And if I was like just some, you know, random lord in the reach, I'd be like, oh, well, thank God. Finally, we have somebody who's not fucking war crazy and, you know, nuts. Uh, I think that he, is, I think in some ways he makes sense as a compromise pick if it had been a field with more options. That if like everybody had effectively put their hat in the ring and they're being left with a situation of where Everyone has vested interests. Everyone has their own armies. Everyone is essentially fighting for the throne based on the force that they can bring to bear to justify accepting them. I would in some ways accept if it was a crowded primary that people would rally behind Bran, kind of like similar to when Jon was a dark horse candidate to be Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, that he's a fitting compromise. That he comes into this with basically no one knowing him, which would really hurt him in the early polling anyway. Um, he has no reputation. He has no he has no degree of background support. He's got yet. a reputation. Uh, only reputation other people have told them about him. No one else in this room, other than those who came down from the north, have the slightest idea who Bran is. Well, they got a raven from him. They well, when? Actually, remind raven. me of that. I don't remember that. Uh, he he sent out a raven to like everybody in the realm, warning them about the threat up north. Okay. Well, they they got a letter, and he, and he well, yep. Yeah, but he was justified in it. Because, I mean, I have a hard time believing that, like, what happened in the North in the battle against the dead didn't, you know, didn't circulate a little bit. So, a little credibility there. I'm just saying. A little credibility. But most of them don't know him personally or know what he necessarily represents or brings to bear. He's not a powerful lord. He has no army. He has no resources. They have heard tell of his abilities. But if you're willing to believe that Yara's going to give a pass to Danny because she wasn't there to see King's Landing happen, I'm not willing to believe that all these lords are just going to assume the nature of his abilities without having anything oh, yeah. demonstrated firsthand. Completely agree with you there. I don't think his abilities have any any bearing here. I just think this is a, a war-fatigued group of people, and they view him as a stabilizing force. And I think that's possible, but they don't know that. And I don't I, I don't know why more lords, um, like, say, Ed, Edmure, aren't putting their own hat in the ring. I, I get... I he get, did. <laughs> he did. Please sit, Uncle. <laughs> yeah. I, I get... In some ways, him working because he is the apolitical choice. He is the neutral outsider that they can give this in a way that isn't aggrandizing any one of them over anybody else. He is the ultimate compromise choice that in some ways avoids a civil war. They just don't represent that that civil war is about to happen for them to all just go, sure, fine, yeah. He avoids the realm being destabilized and returning to chaos. As f But fine. Let's say they made that mental calculus about it being showed on the screen, about it being talked about, or without the Civil War necessarily being directly threatened other than against the Unsullied, do we think Bran himself would be a good king? You seem to think yes. I absolutely think yes. Yeah, he's, uh, first off, he can see shit. So I think that's actually pretty cool because, like, if he gets word, okay, so-and-so is happening in the Reach, he can actually go figure out if so-and-so is happening in the Reach, which is a pretty cool skill to have. I also think he's a level-headed person, um, you know, since becoming the Three-Eyed Raven. Um, 
uh, he he's not emotional. He's, you're not going to have these quick emotional reactions. Shout out Bobby B. He's not war crazy. Um, I think he will be fair. Uh, he's the best choice. I, I full on get the t-shirts printed. Brand the broken 2020. I, I, and I think my concern about him is, as you said, focusing on the emotional aspect of it. It's not that he's not emotional. He is emotionless. He has, as we've I seen... I don't see that in a bad way, though. I do. I see that as a concern. I think that's one of the main justifications you would have for somebody like John Ruling, is that part of ruling, part of having the care to look at these things, is having cares, is having desires, is having motivations, is having some kind of connection to those around you to invest in it. One of the problems with Brand at this point, and he's straight up told people this, is that he lives mostly in the past, because from his perspective, that's most of what he is. That's all of what he is. Is just dwelling in the Not past all. moments of life. He has said us, he's told us that. Not that he all, has, though. He said mostly. Mostly live in the past. Yes. But that is, in my mind, a bit of a concern in terms of his level of investment and caring. Now, I think there's hope of character growth. That I think, I think this show is in some ways represented that this stage of where Bran is at in his training, which is clearly not complete, uh, is a stage of when it is only natural to get lost in the past and lose your connections to the world. But if we see what the show later depicted us of the... of do we want to say the Three-Eyed Crow in the show is Blood Raven? I don't think they've really given us anything to say that. I think he's a, a, an independent character. But the, th- the Three-Eyed Crow, he clearly had a much more human connection, much more human emotions, much more he, human desires. And I think... He said his name was Brendan. He Did, did he? I actually don't yeah. remember that. Yeah, he oh, did. Okay. So it is Brendan Rivers. It is Blood Raven. But it clearly seems like in some ways that as a result of the time he had spent doing what he was doing, he'd eventually refound his humanity and his connections to the world and had emotional reactions and emotional responses. So I think it's very possible that Brand could eventually find that point, and I think that would be a good balance and compromise to his character. If we're, if he has investment in the world and care about its people in a way that we've clearly had him say recently he doesn't have anymore, um, I think this works better. My concerns now is that you've got a guy that has incredibly powerful abilities, essentially is, you know... It's like Tyrion read uh, Dune or Warhammer 40k and went, God Emperor, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Which is an interesting interpretation of those works. And I think it, his abilities would prove useful. His scope and perspective and knowledge of history would be very useful. But it seems more useful in my mind as an advisor to someone who has a bit of humanity rather than the one who's actually being in charge. He'd be a great master of whispers. He'd be a great archmeister. He'd be any number of effective additions to the small council. But as the guy who's actually calling the shots, I kind of want a Ned Stark or a Jon Snow or even a Robert Baratheon that listens or cares a little bit more just because they have a connection to humanity and ability to resonate with those underneath them in a way that we do not presently know that Bran is capable of anymore. You sound to me like the disaffected 2016 voter because who else on that stage would you vote for? Ned Stark's not on the stage. John doesn't have a chance. Robert's dead. Who else are you voting for on the stage other than Bran? And if you say Sansa, I'm ending the episode right now. I'm, I'm, not incl- really. I'm inclined to say Sansa just to, just to piss you off. She'd do a better been, job. I think it, uh, the other lords wouldn't have been as quick to vote for no, her no. because of her fierce loyalty to the North that Bran doesn't have that strong a reputation for. And again, it's some ways where I could buy Bran getting the position because he doesn't have the pre-established connections and biases that the other lords do. 
Um, but I, I'm w unwilling to say that a limited primary field necessarily makes that the choice that you pick, the compromise choice, is a good choice. Okay, fair. But maybe the best that they had on that stage. Um, I actually think he's a great choice, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sending you a Brand the Broken t-shirt. Um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah. It's going to be great. It's, it's fun looking back to the history of Westeros. There are so many brands with nicknames, and we're just adding another one to the list. Can we talk about the fact that Tyrion, yeah, like Tyrion calls him Brand the Broken, mm -hmm. which come on, a little, little offensive. And then they all stand up afterwards, which he can't do. Like it was like <laughs> yes. a tough thing. <laughs> this is the moments before I would like a more human brand because if I was in that situation, my reaction to all this would have been, okay, thank you for the job. Also, fuck you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we've got Brand the Builder built the wall. We've got Bran the shipwright who built the greatest, uh, who built the fleets that the North was once famous for. We have Bran the burner who burnt them all and all the dockyard facilities. And now we have Bran the broken. Brands are just rich with nicknames in this world. I really wanted Bran the rebuilder. That's what I was hoping for. That would have been interesting. I mean, just Bran the broken. Just it feels like it feels like you're really pigeonholing the guy on, on day one. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so as you were talking right there, I just one-clicked order to brand the broken T-shirt. So that's good. <laughs> They've already come. Of course, they already have them out. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, so then Bran informs Tyrion that he will be his hand. Um, Bran, Tyrion's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't deserve it because of the mistakes he's made. Um, Tyr Grey Worm comes in and he says, you cannot. He says, yes, I can. I'm king. Bran flexing early. This is very early flex. Um, he says, uh, Grey Worm says, this man is a criminal. He deserves justice. Bran, so even-handed, he just got it. He's made terrible mistakes. He's going to spend the rest of his life fixing them. Grey Worm says it's not enough. I think that's in reference to Jon Snow, especially since the next cut is to what I'm going to term castaway Jon Snow. I think he has a volleyball there in his, in his cell. Do you think this is actually a real beard that they made to Harrington grow, or is this just good makeup? I think they made him grow it. They've been very fussy with Kit about his... his... <laughs> His facial hair and his actual hair. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, he's, he, again, this is a clear sign. A lot of time has passed. John is looking rough right now. Yeah, he's not looking good. Um, Tyrion explains that Bran couldn't cut him free. Um, but he would not let him die. So he's going to send him to the Night's Watch. <laughs> John, great point here. There's still a Night's Watch. Um, I love this line by Tyrion. Well, no one is very happy, which means it's probably a good compromise. True. Very true about how good compromises work. John is still clearly struggling with what he did to Danny. He said, is it right what I did? Fucking yes, John! Yeah, I know. Tyrion says what we did. Uh, John says it doesn't feel right. Tyrion cracks me up. Ask me again in ten years. T-bomb! That's, that's truth. Mm. Tyrion touches John's shoulder. John says, I don't expect we'll see each other again. And Tyrion says, I wouldn't be so sure. A few years as Hand of the King would make anyone want to piss off the side of the world. Another shout out to season one. Mm-hmm. Um, anything you want to say about here, about this scene uh, with this goodbye scene with John and Tyrion before we cut to John's ex exit? No, I mean, I think this, what we see over the course from very much this moment forward is the exits to the remaining characters that have been the main characters of the show. We see the exits for Tyrion and the, the small council. We see the exits for John, Arya, and Sansa. And they are, again, I'll complain about rushed, but they are all, I feel, very fitting for where the characters have been and what the characters have done. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that. Um, so we get to John. He's walking to a ship and he's met by Sansa, Arya, and Bran. And the Unsullied seem to be packing into ships. John walks by Grey Worm. I still want my fight. 
Yeah. It, 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 it would have been delightfully unexpected if they just threw down right there on the streets. Woo! I would have been a fan. Um, Grey Worm then says they're sailing to Narth. He's keeping his promise to Masende. How do you feel about that? I, you know, I really look for, we talked about this in the reaction, I really look forward to the public works projects that Narth is just not going to be famous for. Because you've got a whole collection of qualified engineers that, from what we saw at the, at the Siege of Winterfell, that are just ready to have nothing to do other than build up Narth and protect it from anything resembling a slaver into the unforeseen future. So, greatest, city, greatest city that ever was or ever will be, maybe? Possibly, yeah. Man, it, it, this, is a, this is a hell of a coup for Narth in terms of what the resources they're acquiring right now. Uh, in terms of all of the Unsullied just going along with um, Grey Worm on this, in terms of him accomplishing what was him and Masende's dream, I'm a little disappointed that apparently all of the Unsullied are just kind of blindly following Grey Worm wherever yeah. he wants to go. What else are they going to do? I, I guess that's what they're going with. That yeah, we got no, we got no other purpose. So yeah, that works. In terms of places to go, I sounds lovely. Other than yeah, you it know, does. beaches. Uh, it's beaches. Uh, you know, I believe that if I remember correctly, there's something about uh, moths that are poisonous and kill people. But I'm sure those will be no issue. They'll be fine. That's not show cannon. That's book cannon. Show cannon is there's butterflies. There's butterflies. Yes, there are butterflies. Which the show framed as being great. The books, on their hand, talk about these things landing on you, biting you, and you die painfully. Yeah, I mean, they could probably get some bug spray. Um, <laughs> DDT. Again, the Unsullied are capable of immense things. If anybody can invent DDT, it is them. Okay, another another thing that the uh, internet trolls are yelling about is, okay, when the Unsullied leave, why doesn't Bran just then allow Jon to stay? Because uh, they want to shoot back. a hole. They would come back, and also, you know, John doesn't have support from everybody in the Seven Kingdoms. There's still folks. It was clear on that stage um, that yeah. are frustrated with him. So I don't, I don't think that would have been a smart political move for a new king that is still people are still getting used to that really has no army at all. No, it, it's got historical pre- precedence too. We can talk about Dirk bitching if you want to go into it. But John's arc in this episode, and over the course of the last few seasons, is really mirroring Brendan Rivers' Bloodraven, including in this exit where. Bloodraven, you know, killed a potential usurper to the throne, cleared a path for Aegon V to take it after a great council meeting. And then Aegon immediately goes, thanks for that, but you just committed the crime of essentially murder in my streets while under a flag of truce. You're going to the... I'm either killing you or you're going to the wall. Yep, so exactly. It, there's, there's situations where you can appreciate what somebody's done, but still, to maintain the concept of law and order, have to punish them for that. Yeah, I agree. Um, so Sansa's pretty great here. I don't say that very often, but she says, I wish there was <laughs> That's way. the first time you've said that in a long time. <laughs> I wish there was another way. Will you forgive me? Uh, John says, the North is free thanks to you, but they lost their king. Ned Stark's father will speak for them. She's daughter. the best they could ask for. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ned Stark's daughter will speak for them. She's the best they could ask for. Mm-hmm. Great ending between these two characters. Um, yeah. Cut to Ari. Uh, go ahead. No, no, I'm agreeing with you. I think it, I think it is a nice exit for the two. Yep, uh, it cut to Arya and she's crying. Um, John says, "You can come see me now." She says, "I can't." And John, very hilariously, he never is really in the same step with Arya uh, since they've been reunited, and he's not here. But he says, "You think anyone would dare tell you a woman wasn't allowed?" <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so Arya says, "I'm not going north," and this surprises Sansa. Clearly, Arya hasn't hasn't told Sansa this yet. She says, "Where are you going?" And Arya says, "What's west of Westeros?" That's what we all want to know. Thank you, Arya. And um, many people have tried. None of them have ever come back, though. So, good luck with that, Arya. Apparently, even if you make it, which is doubtful, you something prevents you from ever coming home again. Yeah, I think she'll just end up in Karth. 
Ah, uh, yeah. I, again, we have no inclination. We've literally had George R. Martin say, no one has ever successfully sailed west before, or at least lived to tell about it. So, even if she makes it, no one ever hears about them again. So, yeah. again, well, potential topic for book nerd bitching. It's fascinating. They're in the, they're in the greatest city that ever was ever boy. Um, so... Karth is really pretty far... Actually, again, this is a weird thing to say, but from the westernmost point... Karth is pretty far west or closer to Westeros than that. There's a lot that we even know of that is uh, east of Karth. Man, yeah, these directions get, get weird. Get through, she'll get through that. She'll get, through, she'll get to Karth. Shadowlands, um, Bonelands, they're fine. John says, I, well, she killed the Night King. Uh, John says, I don't know. Um, and Arya says, no one knows. That's where the, all the maps stop. That's where I'm going. John mm-hmm. asks, do you have your needle? Arya says, right here. Yet again, another shout-out to season one. Stark theme plays, and I didn't cry at all. I mean, not even a little bit. How about you? <laughs> I started to go a little misty in terms of the Stark theme playing and them cutting between the various resolutions of these characters. Because whatever complaints I have about this season, these three resolutions feel true. They feel like how these characters will end up in the books or wherever else. And I enjoyed them. I appreciated them. Uh, John then bends the knee to Bran. He says, I'm sorry I wasn't there when you needed me. Bran says, you were exactly where you're supposed to be. Bran is like, he's President Ford-esque with the pardons. I mean, he, he, he's very <laughs> oh, good. Man. Nice very, reference. <laughs> very good at making people uh, feel good about uh, times they fucked up. I, I don't enjoy the Nixonian comparison to John, but besides that, good reference, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, cut to Brienne. She's looking over, what is that book? Question for you. What is the book? Sorry, what are we saying? Cut to Brienne, and she's looking over a book. Oh, Brienne is looking over the White Book, uh, the record of every member of the Kingsguard who has ever served since the time of Aegon I, which is the duty of the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard to update for every one of its members. Yep, and she's looking it over. She's passing by some folks we know, Sir Arthur Dane, Sir Barristan Salmi, and she gets to Jamie's, and it's a bit skim, as uh, Joffrey pointed out in Season 4. Yeah, um, the, the last entry was literally done by Barristan Selmy as he was exiting. So that's at least in the books, Jamie starts updating his own page. But at least from the show, it seems like Barristan just did the last little piss off comment about Jamie, and that's about it. Yep. So Brienne finishes it. Why? Why is she doing this? I mean, Jamie did hit it and quit it. That was a bad move, bad look on his part. It is her obligation. It is strongly implied, and this is the implication of the show. We're willing to accept what they're what they're showing me that. Brienne is now Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. We see her sit on the small council meeting that occurs later. Yes, we see her in the full-on yeah. armor. She is Lord Commander. So it is her sworn duty to update this book as to every member. And mm-hmm. there, as Jamie's looking through this book in the, in, in the book's own point, he straight up sees that a lot of these members have really bad entries in terms of the honesty being very brutally honest as to the shit they did. It talks about traitors. It talks about... Ones that are breaking their vows of chastity. It talks about, you know, the kingmaker, Creston Cole, and all of the actions he did, including literally murdering members of the small council in the small council room. It is detailed and it is accurate of the good and the bad. Only leaving out apparently one Dornish guy and his paramours, um, in terms of Luel Martel, a recent member. So, it is her sworn duty to update this. And I feel like if Jamie had been, well, book Jamie, if book Jamie had been looking over his shoulder when he did this, he kind of would have been pissed at her that she is so brushing over a lot of the missteps that Jamie was making. Yeah, and that that was my point. Is like, yeah. So you're saying it's her duty to update the book. It's not her duty to to be so flowery, no, flowery uh, about what Jamie did. And she instant she ends it with he died protecting his queen. Yeah, it, 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 which I I don't like. Uh, 
I don't like her line either. She, uh, he died protecting his queen, or he went south to protect the people of King's Land. Because those are just... They're either straight up misleading or they're straight up false. The last line is just heartbreaking. Because again, it just shows what... Uh, how wrong Jamie treated Brienne with respect to their relationship, to how much she's willing to forgive him in the end for it. Um, yeah. I'd also like to point out that Brienne has incredible penmanship for someone oh, yeah. who's been fucking around the Seven Kingdoms for years. When was the last time she wrote anything? I don't think we've ever seen her write anything on the show, but yeah, again, quality to quality penmanship coming from her. She is doing the book proud. Um, I, I'm not going to do this for Bitching because there's not much left to say about it. Can I just offer one little final story I love about the White Book? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, again, the White Book is maintained by the Lord's Commander. One of, the, one of the things I love, too, is just how utterly determined some of them are to get in the entries, even when it's no longer appropriate that they do so. That when Jamie, who's now Lord Commander after Barristan Selmy left, comes across the book to, you know, update it, he finds that Barristan Selmy updated his entry and Jamie's entry after Joffrey had fired him when members of the Gold Cloaks are actively pursuing him to kill him, or arrest him or kill him. Quite possibly after he's already killed a couple gold cloaks with a dagger. He's still on the run. Having been kicked out of the position, he still feels the obligation to go back to the book and update it before he exits town. Which I, 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 I want the visual in my mind of him with just a bloody dagger sitting on the table from knifing a couple gold cloaks that came after him. Still writing calmly and diligently in the book before he exits. That's just the level of dedication board commanders, particularly the wonderful bears from the bold have, to making sure the white book is complete while I still have time. Yeah, that's pretty great. Okay, cool. I appreciate that. Um, mm -hmm. Tyrion comes into the small council's chambers. How was that area rebuilt this fast? Uh, I think in some ways they're implying now, because we, we cut from this sort of to what John already being up in the north and being with, with the Night's Watch, that even more time has now passed. I, again, don't buy that this room is now just pristine and perfect again, because that almost implies, like, they just rebuilt the Red Keep, which, that shit would take decades. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the book, I mean, it takes so damn long to... to I mean, it, it, Aegon the Conqueror didn't finish the Red Keep. No, it was, was finished under his successors. It takes... It can take generations to build a castle. I mean, like, it's just in my mind now because of it being this so much, but Notre Dame Cathedral took hundreds of years to build. That's the kind mm. of... That is the kind of thing that we see in terms of the ancient world in terms of how long it takes to build edifices like this. So, yeah, Red Keep would have taken a freaking age. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and Tyrion is moving around the chairs. Um, anyone who has ever taken a new management role understands yeah. this. Before yeah. your first meeting as a manager, you're just fucking fumbling, nervous. You, okay, everything has to be set just right. You're just trying to... And then, you know, everybody comes in they screw up the chairs. Now... <laughs> In our reaction pod, um, I think we ended with you up 30. Mm -hmm. And you won 15 bucks on Sam writing a song of ice and fire. Yeah. I rescind that. No, no. I you cannot take this from me. Nope. I challenge it. Archmaster Abros wrote it. Sam only had the title. Sam wrote the title. That's all we. That, that, that counts. That, no. That, that, he's, get, he's, getting, he's getting a junior author credit on that book. I'm willing he to edit it. He compiled it. He wrote the title. He nope. He did not. He didn't edit it. He never said he did. He said I just added the title. He actually you, said I just you, added the title. You're willing to assume that the Iron Isles are a freaking independent kingdom. I get to assume that Sam edited the damn book that he was a junior a junior writer on. I threw it out there as an option. We didn't have money on it. I'm going to say this is a push. I'm going to say no, 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 no. We're I'm getting this one. 
Uh, okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's ask folks to weigh in. So, uh, Fine. W- listeners, uh, let us know what you think. Go to our Facebook page, Facebook page, Facebook. Uh, sorry, facebook.com slash mangumtalks or go to mangumtalks.com upper right hand corner, select contact us. Say, does Spencer deserve $15 for the bet where he said Sam would write the Song of Ice and Fire when Sam came in with the book A Song of Ice and Fire and said that Archmaster Abrose wrote it? I have been predicting this for literally like three seasons. I've been predicting this from the moment we freaking started this podcast. I need credit for this. I'm at half credit rounds up in terms of this one. Well, I, I said I'd give you a push. What, 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 okay, this is me not understanding gambling terms. When you say push, what are you, what are you, what are you giving <laughs> Sorry. me? Sorry. Uh, I'm not giving you anything, and you're not giving me anything. We just call the bet off. No, no, no. I want, I want fire and blood, sir. Ooh, all right. Well, I mean, you. it's a, it's an interesting position. I want to win the bet because I should win the bet because I need to win the bet. But um, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that'll go over in a sports, sports book in uh, Vegas. We'll see in the fall. Apparently, the unsullied get to, win, get, get to decide policy based on essentially those terms, so I'm taking inspiration from them. <laughs> Tyrion wants to know his role in the book, which was pretty funny because he wasn't mentioned, uh, which got, gets a, a chuckle from Braun. Uh, Bran comes in and they fuck up saying your grace, which is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bran points out he's missing a Master of Whispers. Uh, blame Danny for that. Mm-hmm. Laws and war. Tyrion says candidates will be brought to him in the coming weeks. So they're they're building a small council. They're starting a government again. Yeah. And it's one of those things where some of these positions don't necessarily need to occur. I mean, the Lord Commander can serve as the Master of War. You don't necessarily need an independent one. And uh, the King's Guard, that is. And also, does Bran really need a Master of Whispers, like, at all? The guy could see anything that's happening in the world everywhere. Eh, I think it's a stability thing. It's like, uh, you know, keep keep the same sort of positions so that the next king will, will inherit it the same way. I mean, if he starts screwing around with small council positions, he's not creating the level of stability that I think he was probably selected for. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that um, one of the problems with Bran's um, scope is that he has, it's so, he's able to perfectly zoom in on individual moments, but he doesn't necessarily know to look for them. And so he can quickly just lose the forest for the trees kind of thing when he, if, he, if he's um, tasked with being a, a spy master and king at the same time. Agreed. Um, then uh, uh, Bran asks about Drogon, which is a very fair point. I would be asking about this fucking dragon oh, yeah. every two weeks if I was king. Tyrion says he was last spotted flying east. Braun says the farther the better. Braun saw dragons once. That was enough for him. Yeah, he also has a personal group. He and Drogon have a, in terms of, you know, fights that didn't get to happen again, him and Drogon have a throwdown that's probably waiting to happen at some point. Because really, yeah. Braun got closer, closer to anyone to killing that dragon. Yeah, I don't like Braun's chances if uh, Drogon shows back up at King's Landing. Um, Bran says, perhaps I can find him. Do carry on with the rest. Sir Podrick of the King's Guard! Oh my god, the tripod. I'm so happy that he is not only a knight, but he's in the king, uh, I, King's Guard. I love the smile on his face. I just, I, I love just how beaming he is as he's walking to this room. He's just like, yep, that's right, bitches. Look at this. Look at this. Shiny armor. Thank you. Yep, I love that character arc for him. Uh, totally deserves it. A dutiful squire. Uh, and then now, clearly, a dutiful knight of the King's Guard. Mm-hmm. They say, Tyrion says, we serve at the, your pleasure, King Bran the Broken, ruler of the Six Kingdoms and protector of the realm, and it's a shit show repeating long may he reign. Um, Tyrion looks down and away, that will improve, and Bran with the funny line says, I'm sure it will, and kind of grins on his way out. Which again, which offers, as in support of your position about Bran, a suggestion that now that he's in some ways been removed from constant weirwood connection and being around people again, he is rebuilding a bit of humanity. Which yeah. gi- gives hope that he will be much more in the keeping of the Three-Eyed Raven than the kind of 
emotionless automaton we've seen of him for a couple seasons. Which, yeah, and I like the way you put that, Spencer, because it would make sense that he would be as plugged into Werewood.net as humanly possible when, not humanly, inhumanly possible, uh, when the Night King is on the uh, march, right? I mean, he had to put everything into that, but now that thread is gone. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. Maybe he's he's approaching a little bit more humanity than he had when that immediate threat to everyone um, was on the horizon. Which gives me hope that this won't be you know God Emperor of the 40k universe kind of situation with him. Which I'm glad to say. Yeah. Um, so here's what we can discuss. Uh, Brienne looks to be Lord Commander of the King's Guard, as you pointed out. Bronn is the Lord of Highgarden and Master of Coin. Sam is the Grand Maester. Uh, a lot of people online complaining, well, how did Sam get out of his uh, vows to the Night's Watch? It's like, no one gives a shit. That's how. Yeah. Like, after <laughs> the king ruled it, happened, Well, it, apparently you, the king's not allowed to rule it because apparently once you're... And it, this no, I'm not, I'm, this yeah. is actually true from the books, that once you become a member of the Night's, uh, Night's Watch, you are away from... You were out of the king or queen of Westeros' uh, purview and you had no, they had no control over you. I just think nobody cared. Yeah. I mean, as you said, the the example with Amon of where Amon, even when he was already sworn to the Citadel, which should remove him to the line of successor, people were coming to him in front of the Great Council when Aegon V was ultimately elected to say, hey, maybe you should be king. We actually know you. You're older anyway. And to remove himself from consideration, he then joined the Night's Watch with Bryden Rivers and the, and the Raven's Teeth and everybody else just to eliminate even the possibility that he could be a threat to his brother's rule. So I agree with you that Night's Watch is absolute. No one can take that back. No one can second guess that. But as you said... This is a world where the traditions have been just upended. Who is going to, at this point, who really cares? The Night's Watch doesn't even have an intact wall to defend anymore. There, as uh, Tyrion said, more just a dumping ground for people we don't want to deal with than serving a practical purpose as much anymore. Yeah, and it's like, who is going to be like, well, I'm ready to swear fealty to King Bran. But you know what? He released Samuel Tarly from his Night's Watch vows, so uh, I'm not... Like, nobody's yeah. going to care. That's not going to be a linchpin in anybody's support for Bran. Yeah. And Bran trusts him. They have a relationship. I think the show did a pretty good job in the limited amount of time they had in the last two seasons to develop that relationship mm-hmm. between Bran and Sam. So it makes sense to me that Bran would want Sam on his small council. So I, I fully support that. And it, it, while the Grand Meister is, t- in the books at least, primarily selected from the Citadel, it does have a bit of a ring of a political appointee kind of thing to it as well. So if the king voiced that he wanted a particular person in place, the Citadel's not going to say no in terms of Bran getting the job anyway, in terms of Sam getting the job anyway. Um, can you and, imagine if the Citadel questioned Bran on this? Yes. And Bran I, can write back and say, uh, well, I don't know. I sent you a raven about the imminent threat to humanity and you completely ignored it. Um, maybe you lost some credibility with me. I can very much picture the Citadel questioning him about this. That's what the Citadel does. I, don't um, know, I, just, I just think Bran would be in a position to tell them yeah. to fuck right off. And as you said, uh, in terms of complaints people can raise about Bran or whatever else, if they weren't complaining about the North just becoming independent at an active whim, they ain't complaining about this. This is small potatoes compared to other issues that they could possibly be, be, be beefing about. And one of many like endings that I really like in this episode is the slow back away of the small council with Tyrion in his hand, and they're just sitting there bickering about politics. Um, kind of like a politics is back to normal, right? Things are back to normal. And Tyrion starts the story. Everyone wants to know the most important thing, I think, in the show and the books. The story of when he once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel. And damn it, Spencer, we didn't get it. 
Yeah, this is just taunting. This is just like this. Is I was the really mad. Like, and Sarah like looked at me like I had like forehead. She was like, "What are? What are you so mad about?" It's like I've been wanting for so long to hear this fucking story. Oh, yeah. I, I was looking at this going turning turning bridge and said, "All my complaints about this episode will be done if we actually get this story." And then they just taunt us with it. It's like you now, fuck off. Ugh, so annoying. Well, then John arrives at Castle Black. Tormund gives him a look. It's a slight nod. A lot of folks questioning, like, oh, well, it's not realistic. Tormund would be super excited to see him. I think he is, but I think he also recognizes that it's not the best of circumstances, and he probably has some sympathy for what's happened to John. Yeah. And so I think he's not just running and jumping into his arms because he knows that John's probably in a bad headspace. Uh, one little closing thought you said about the small council meeting. I've where I had some okay. people, I had some people complain about that scene in terms of well, what does any of this matter? This is just people dickering at a table. I, I like you liked that in some ways it showed that the politics of Westeros was continuing. It reminded me in some way. This is, this can sound really dumb, and if you've actually seen it, but you have you seen The Wire? <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I know. Sorry, obvious question. But it reminded me in some ways of the ending of The Wire and the same thing yeah. they're going with it in terms of. All of these character arcs, all of these stories, everything that has been done, the last few scenes are still showing the game continues. That for whatever these people have accomplished, for however they'll be remembered, the game persists. And I like that in some ways they're tying into that common theme here about for all of these world-changing events, for all these characters have done, the Game of Thrones, the politics of Westeros, the heart of which the show is arguably built around, is still persisting in exactly the same way in these moments. And I, I like that kind of acknowledgement of world building and persistence of the world that the show has kind of been leaving behind a bit previously. Excellent comparison, Spencer. I give that a 12 out of 10. That was really strong because you're right. That's what they're going for here. It's like, okay, well, yes, these things happen to these characters. These were important events, but this world continues. It, it, things are going on. And so uh, that's what it showed. And, and, and The Wire did the same thing, which I really liked the ending to The Wire as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Castle Black. Um, so people complaining about Tormund not jumping into John's arms. Just shut up. That's, that's yeah. dumb. Now, um, now John but, and Ghost, though. Oh, uh, well, we're not quite there. Um, we have this incredible sequence of the Stark children, mm-hmm. um, and specifically Sansa, Arya, and John accepting their new roles. Yeah. And there's these like cutaways of Sansa walking to Arya walking to John walking. John, tell me if I'm crazy. John is obviously the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, right? It, they're strongly implying that. Yeah, that's my interpretation of that scene. Um, and the, yeah. he, he seems like he's an obvious choice for the job anyway at this point, in large part because how many members of the Night's Watch are you assuming are left? I, I, like a hand, two or three maybe. But I, I, I think that <laughs> few most hundred, of them are, few hundred maybe. Oh, a few hundred. There wasn't even a hundred to begin with, um, I, unless you're counting the wildlings. No, I mean, I mean, at the time of um, like the the siege of Castle Black, there were over a thousand members of the Night's Watch scattered between the various castles. So God, maybe Spencer, you you need to do a book podcast because the show specifically said there was about a hundred. <laughs> Fine, okay. There's a couple <laughs> dozen. Give me that much. Well, yeah, I mean, there may be some, but I think the preponderance of what makes up the Night's Watch now is wildlings. If we're going to include them in the Night's Watch, sure. Um, but it seems like they're in Castle Black. They're in control, and there's no way that they're going to select a leader with Tormund and the wildlings there. And John's not going to be that damn leader. Uh, but they don't say it as explicitly as we get with Sansa, who is queen and enough. Sansa comes in. She has a go back and look at this crown she's got. It's incredible, man. Oh yeah, she's clearly this is clearly a crown unique to her. She's not just assuming the crown of the kings of winter. This is something that is very much from her and her own experiences, which would make sense that for all of her unique journeys, for all the moments that she's survived and overcome, that she would have her own unique claim to the throne, her own unique symbols associated with it. Yeah, Arya is on her. Arya is on her ship. She's headed west of Westeros. 
The score works in the Stark theme, the Sansa theme, the Arya theme, and then we get John petting ghosts. Oh my gosh. Um, you happy? I'm happy. Uh, I was so... You, you saw me ranting and raving about how pissed off I was when John had that just look over his shoulder, glance at ghosts as he just rides off. Uh, we talked about at the time how much we would forgive it if we got that moment later when John goes north of the wall. And we friggin' got it, and it was what I was hoping for, the two of them to have that bonding moment of where... Yeah, it was great. I love that he's petting him, despite all the CGI costs associated with fur. So, yeah, adored that. And we, yeah. Did we, were yeah. you able to find whether that was really a wolf or not? I'm going to do two things here. One is I'm going to tell anybody listening who didn't listen to our Season 8, Episode 6 reaction pod that Spencer had the best blow to in the boxing match that is this podcast. The best blow to me ever when he said, well, I'm sure I'm sure glad the show was able to get past the million dollars of CGI so that John could finally pet Ghost, uh, <laughs> which was a body blow, man. That was, that was tough for me. Um, so here's what folks are saying online. Nobody knows uh, about how this scene came together, but there is... And this is probably nuts, but there is scuttlebutt that like after about the first couple episodes, Kit Harrington had to cancel an appearance to go to HBO Studios. And they said that the, the idea here is that the showrunners panicked because they figured out there was a revolt that he didn't actually pet Ghost. So they actually had a an actual wolf come uh, to HBO Studios and they just did a very quick pet scene, which they CGI'd in. I don't know if I believe that, I don't but it does that. to me, it doesn't to me look like CGI'd fur. It does, and this is the point I made on the reaction about it. it. Looks to me like he's petting some live animal. So either the CGI is just incredible, or they did splice in some, you know, him petting some real fur in some way. All right. There's many ways that you can do CGI in these moments that works in both real and pure, purely computer generated. Uh, I think in many ways the most effective special effects are ones that are building around something that is actually physically there, not only to give the art, the actor something to interact with and act off of, but also to give a, a real connection the audience can associate upon something they didn't just expand it on. So there's many ways they could have done this, but I think there's definitely some CGI at play. Yep, and then we get John Torman, the Wildlings, what's left of the Night's Watch, um, going north. And they go north of the wall. I'm not sure what they're doing. I'm not sure that John seems very happy. Um, mm -hmm. It is the ending I wanted for John. It's the ending I predicted for the show. I'm happy that John is now with the Wildlings and Torman. I think he's more in common with them than anybody in the world. Mm -hmm. And the show theme plays. And that's a wrap for Game of Thrones. Now, I heard some people online saying that John, being Lord Commander, is just escorting them north and he's intending to come back. I it did not in any way interpret that from that from this scene of where no, me neither. when John visibly watches the Night's Watch close the door behind them, I thought pretty much everybody was on the same page as to what what the Night's Watch knew what John was doing, the Wildlings knew what John was doing, John knew what John was doing. He's not intending to ever return back home. Or the, or the wall or anything else. He's going to make a life, if he can, with the wildlings in the far north. I thought they were just on some mission or something. Really? Yeah, I thought they were just kind of, like, taking a hike. Nah, I, f I figured that they were, I mean, they were leaving. That otherwise, why would they bring all the children with them and everything else? This was the wildlings, as they said, going back to the true north to make their life there. So and you don't think that John is actually Lord Commander of the Night's Watch? You think uh, that he, he just left with the wildlings? I think he may have, I don't know how much time passed between these events. I mean, winter was still there. Winter can take years to pass. It could have possibly been years um, in terms of the passage of time. I mean, there's lots of little children running around that may have just emerged over the time the wildlings spent at the castle before they left. So I assume that John became Lord Commander and time has passed between these moments. But then, yeah, he's he's exiting states left the way some, some Lord Commanders, like Bryden River's Bloodraven, 
have done in the past. Yeah, when he took Dark Sister north of the wall. He, he took Dark Sister, John took Longclaw. The comparisons are really rife between these characters. I mean, the fact that, the fact that Blood Raven is an albino with red eyes and Ghost is the same way. It's a lot of weird comparisons they've really drawn between these two characters over the course of these last few seasons. Yeah, well, Ghost gets his retirement package too because uh, Ghost did go north of the wall with John and the Wildlings, but that is a wrap on the episode. I'm telling you, I'm much more positive about this episode than just about 99% of people are. Um, so that's my opinion on it. Spencer, your thoughts on the conclusion of Game of Thrones? I mean, I'm more positive than most people are, in, driven in large part based on the fact that people are very, very, very pissed about this last season uh, in a way that they have justifications, but the, their level of rancor has obviously gone too far. That there's a lot... Is on is, is dissatisfying as elements of the season could be. Um, the petition signed by millions of people just feels like a waste of people's time and effort, regardless of how uh, passionate they are. Such a juvenile thing to do. I, mean, I, I get that they're pissed. I've signed petitions every now and then just because I was pissed in the past, but it, it changes nothing. It's just... I, I, I get you need this cathartic moment in terms of just expressing your outrage, but... I am not as pissed as, pe- as a lot of people are. I found this season, particularly the second half of the season, disappointing. Uh, I very much agree that the last two seasons were rushed in a way that inevitably st- um, left them in a position that they couldn't rec- uh, rectify. Um, I found couple these last three episodes had some of the worst moments of the season, maybe even the show for a couple of them. But I find ultimately this episode, while it was... A bit by the numbers and not necessarily that inspiring. Um, it checked the boxes it wanted to check. I find it a fitting resolution, maybe a bit med- mediocre, but not at all as objectionable pe- people are saying about it. It, I, it feels like my main objection of this is not where the characters ended up or the resolution of events. Those ring is very much true to me. I just wish we got more. We had more time to develop and get to them and complete really the building of the world. So we talked about one of the best scenes of this episode is the act of world building of just showing that the game persists. Um, as much as I like all of these resolutions of character arcs, I wish we'd able been able to get a more complete picture of the world that they're in. But just from the streamlined format that they were going to do, that was never going to be possible. So I thought the episode was fine. Very much enjoyed certain moments of it. I'm left feeling a little bit let down over the course of how the last season has gone, but I'm in no way as marching in the streets with torches trying to burn Frankenstein as some people are. Okay. Well, I think we're kind of in agreement that this, as you put it, rancor uh, about the season actually made us like it maybe a little bit more, or at least feel the need to defend it a little bit more on this podcast. I think the level of outrage was just sort of ridiculous. And I think it shows... That no matter what they did, people were going to be pissed. And I think a lot of it, it honestly, if people were, were sitting back and being self-reflective and being honest, at least part of this is they're mad the show is over. Yeah, and there's definitely not a lot of that. But it's a collection of people that they always were going to piss off. There's no way they could avoid it. The book fans have already been up in a revolt for like two seasons now because the show is legitimately massively differently, massively different than what the show, the books are probably going to do if the books ever have a chance to do it, and what the characters themselves are. We talked about how different Jamie is. We talked about how different certain other characters are in terms of the arcs they go on and the resolutions they're probably going to get. So they're always going to be pissed, and I understand why to a certain degree. The show, the, the strictly show only fans are going to be pissed because of how invested they are in certain characters and in how they wrapped up. There's a lot of fans that are in the show only because of Danny. She was the overarching, probably most popular fan uh, character on the show for strictly show only watchers. And a lot of them are just going to be inherently pissed just based on where they went with her arc. 
And there's not much they could do about avoiding that. They knew what they wanted to do, and they didn't have much time to build it up any more than they did. So those people are going to be pissed. There's nothing you can do about that. And then as you just said, it's eight years done. They haven't announced what the next show is going to be. We don't know what the new material is going to be, and there's no books down the line. People are always going to be pissed about an ending, just when they've just so invested and they want more material to have. So between those three forces brought to bear and between some legitimate complaints about the writing and pacing and whatever else you uh, want to direct to these last few seasons... You've got a shitstorm that's inevitably brewing, and it came to fruition in a way we perfectly could have predicted. Yep, I agree. You want to move on to the final best line of the episode of season eight? Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, I mean, this this episode had some definitely some good writing moments, and I've got some both powerful or just fun quotes to go through. Okay, I'll start with. How much more defeated do you want them to be? They're on their knees. That's my first one. It's such a Davos line. I, I, I love that Davos survived this series and did well with it because he very much is the, the heart and the common sense peasant perspective on things that a lot of these characters desperately need. Completely I, agree. I, I also love that he's later going to correct people's grammar, which may be one of my quotes. We'll see. Um, Ooh, a tease. I, I, don't, I actually don't remember. I don't, I mean, I, I'm just going through the notes one at a time. Uh, next one for me is... I suppose this, there is a cruel kind of justice. I betrayed my closest friend and watched him burn. Now Varys's ashes can tell my ashes. See, I told you. I like that one a lot. Um, I like, you freed your brother. You committed treason. I freed my brother. And you slaughtered a city. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. Um, all right, I'm going to go on with Tyrion. As you said, this is just the unassailable body blow of an argument to John. My father was an evil man. Yep. My sister was an evil woman. Pile up the bodies of all the people they ever killed, and there still won't be half as many as our beautiful queen slaughtered in a single day. Yep. Absolutely. How about this back and forth? Um, would you have burned the city down? I don't know. Yes, you do. You won't say because you don't want to betray her, but you know. It doesn't matter what I do. It matters more than anything. Powerful line. Powerful line. It reminds me very much of um, Davos' line to Stannis, of when... Stannis is just kind of flippantly saying, what does one boy matter compared to the to the, the, sa- the safety of the kingdoms? And Davos famously responds, everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is, that, that's that's what this, where this line is coming from me, and I love both of those lines in that regard. Uh, next one's long, but I just love that they finally have provided this degree of really background to Danny's psychology in a way we got more pre- uh, previously. When she murdered the slavers of Astapor, I'm sure no one but the slavers complained. After all, they were evil men. When she crucified hundreds of Miranese nobles, who could argue? They were evil men. The Dothraki college she burned alive, they would have done worse to her. Everywhere she goes, evil men die and we cheer her for it. And she grows more powerful the more sure she is that she is good and right. She believes her destiny is to build a better world for everyone. If you believed that, if you truly believed it, wouldn't you kill whoever stood between you and paradise? I, that is a great line. I wish we had more emphasis on that kind of focus into Danny's character. It is a great degree of explanation for the reasonable pathway someone would go in terms of their downward spiral towards megalomania. Completely agree. I'm going to cut to <clears throat> love is the death of duty. Yeah. A few lines later, sometimes duty is the death of love. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Um, okay, I don't want to take Arya's line from you, so I'm going to let you. Shall I let you just do Arya's line now? Um, yeah, do we? Do you have anything before that? I actually don't. My, my next one is in, my next lines are in the uh, Kingsmoot or the uh, Kingsmoot. Sorry, the Great Council meeting. 
Well, there you go. <laughs> a little slip of the tongue there. Yeah. Um, sure. How about... Um, say another word about killing my brother and I'll cut your throat. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a great line. It's such an, it's such an in line for Arya. Um, I'm just going to say this in response to Sam's speech because I loved it so much. Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. <laughs> I'll cut to a very powerful one. This is This is up there. Why do you think I came all this way? Oh, well, actually, we need to go into that line after we're done here, because I want to talk to you about that. Uh, but, yeah, it's an interesting line. Uh, do another line from the same event, just because I love Davos so much. I'm not sure I get a vote, but I. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I don't suspect, expect, I don't expect we'll see each other again. I wouldn't be so sure. A few years as Hand of the King would make anyone want to piss off the side of the world. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I, I I don't think they will ever see each other again, given where John appears to go. But yeah, it's a good line. Uh, last one for me, just because this is the most. This says that despite everything that has happened, Stannis lives. Is Bronn calling out Davos for? You're the master of grammar now, too. Stannis still around, still alive, still inspiring those to proper proper English language maintenance in the future. Um, I think that's all I got. That's all I got. Oh, I, well, we could do. I once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into the broth. No, no, it doesn't deserve it. It's taunting. All right. Well, I have to check. Uh, I have to pick one here. I'm scrolling through my notes. What is it going to be? This is important, sir. This is the last quote everyone will remember. The best line of the episode, season eight, episode six, the Iron Chair. The Iron Throne, the finale of all of Game of Thrones. Sometimes, duty is the death of love. So, I like it. I, I, I think it's a nice little uh, coda on, Ma- on Meister Eamon's line in terms of completing what John needs to learn from it and what John needs to be inspired by there. So, yeah, I'll, I will take that. Ultimately, I feel like this was a story about Jon Snow. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there was a ton of other characters and a ton of other things to be interested in, but I think he was the backbone if, in as much as the show has one. And this explains his decision, which, of course, completely changes the tra- trajectory of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why he did it. Duty is the death of love. Yeah. Um, it is, in some ways, it's providing interesting parallels between John and uh, Jamie in terms of the decisions that they're made. I just feel like John would have been viewed in a better light by the people of the world, just given what was known about or seen from what Danny had done as compared to the Mad King. But it seems like he's following a very similar path in terms of how the world has rejected him. Okay, you wanted to talk about why do you think I came all this way before you get into book nerd bitching? Let's discuss that real quick. So that is a very interesting line um, in terms of both Bran's motivations for why he's doing what he's doing and also debatably the nature of his abilities. Um, we've never before seen... Pre- we have been previously told and represented that Bran can see essentially everything that has happened in the past. There's been some debate back and forth about whether he can change events... I think we've seen that he can. Um, we've never made any indication that Bran can see into the future, because the future isn't written. There's nothing that can be seen about events that haven't happened yet. But this is suggesting not necessarily that Bran saw the future, but that he intended this outcome. Uh, what do we make of that? Does that suggest a... It gives us the first inkling of a human thing from Bran that he has actually, in some ways, organized or planned or even possibly changed events to bring about this resolution? 
Or is he just reading the tea leaves for what the inevitable thing is to happen and that he needs to be there for it? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't, <laughs> I don't, it's a I, really I, I, ambiguous know, I, line. I was actually kind of happy when we skipped by this and was unhappy when you wanted to go back to it because I don't have an answer. Uh, I love that Bran is king, as I pointed out. I think he's going to be a great king. I don't really know what this line means. I think you can interpret it in a lot of ways. Everything from him being like a future-looking green seer, um, which, I, you know, maybe, uh, or he just, as a human, was, was hoping that, that this would be the outcome, and he was kind of reading the tea leaves of, well, who the hell else is going to do it? They're going to need a king, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't really know what it means. Uh, and I, in some ways, I wish they hadn't included it because I don't know what it means. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, they had to have some sort of answer that came from him that wasn't like an eager, yes, I want to be king, because obviously that, that is not in keeping with his character. Yeah, it, it shows a degree of desire and willfulness of him that we haven't previously seen in a while. In some ways, I like it because it suggests that he's capable of what you believe he's capable of and how he can improve in the way we've talked about, that he has already a desire and thought and almost an impish degree of amusement that this is accomplished in a way that he thought was going to occur. But it is so damn ambiguous as to what we're meant to necessarily get out of it and what he's saying by it. Um, I, I'm, I'm content leaving it as a question for, for philosophers. I've offered my two cents about where I think what Brand is trying to say by it, but I agree with you. It is willfully opaque as to what they want to go for with that line. I just think they went for a mystery. I don't know. I'm sure D&D don't even know what it means. <laughs> no way. I, I, I like how much we, we how much we enjoy the show, how much we've enjoyed where it's gone, the resolutions of the characters, but how just utterly dismissive we are of the writers at this point. Well, they did some good things, but I don't think that they think you know, as deeply about, you know, individual abilities or prophecy or some of the things that like really book leader book readers latch on to. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I, that's a throwaway line to me. As I said, I had four moments of where I really in the watching the episode assumed they were about to do a dumb thing. And I was glad that they'd kept on dodging those bullets where I assumed that they were going to leave Jamie alive, which would have been really dumb and bad. I assumed that they were going to have Arya kill Drogon when she was about to kill uh, John which I would have just turned off the episode and left if that had happened. Uh, I was worried they were actually going to have John agree with Danny, which would have been an interesting enough change-up if just devastation of his character. Uh, and I was worried that people were actually going to agree with Sam at the small council meeting, which, I, again, it's, it shows that it shows just how jaded I've gotten towards the actors, uh, the, the writers that I assumed that they were going to do these dumb things when they started setting them up. And I was glad that they proved me wrong and did a bit of change-up in terms of almost making fun of, yeah, we kind of were foreshadowing that, but that's so obviously dumb. P- points away from you from even thinking we would, we would have done it. Okay, a little... Uh, I'm going to back up there. So you, you mean when they were going to agree with Sam at the... at the um, at that, that greater council, right? Not the small council meeting. I was worried that when Sam proposed that, everyone would uh, just go pro- along he, with it. When he proposed democracy, not, yes. not when he was actually in Bran's small council. And then also, you thought Arya was going to kill Drogon? I was... I was of a point of what? where it, it seemed inevitable that John was about to die due to Drogon. And with Drogon then rearing up and with this interesting blank space behind him and us previously talking about how dumb it would be if Arya just jumped in and killed Drogon, that I was turning to Bridget and saying, if they fucking do that right now, I'm done. I'm walking. Lucha, it's over. I'm done. The Lucha Libre off the top no. rope. And I talked with several, several of my friends and coworkers, and all of them said that they thought in that moment Ari was going to jump in and save John. That's uh, that was apparently a not wasn't alone in that thought of what they were setting up, and that would have been the dumbest thing ever if that had happened. Yeah, it would have been. 
pretty fucking terrible. Do you want to go to a segment that you control, book nerd bitch? I'm. I have options for you this time, sir. Actually, okay. firing five of them, but we've kind of already addressed one and a half of them. So you might want to. You can decide cutting those off if you like. Um, okay. Option number one. We talked about that Sansa riding south, seemingly with all of the forces of Winterfell, has a very Hour of the Wolf feel about it. It's interesting going through what the show is depicted, why everyone is just kind of really uncomfortable and scared of the Northerners. And that's because of moments that happened back in the Dance of Dragons called the Winter Wolves and the Hour of the Wolf. The Pact of Ice and Fire. How many comparisons we saw in this episode, it might be fun to discuss that again. Including in the last episode of the army attacking King's Landing the way it did. Uh, So that's option number one. Uh, Option number two, great councils in the past. What Tyrion's proposing, while it's a mouthful of words, you know, oligarchic, republican, electoral, monarchic, life estate kind of proposal for what the king's power will be, it does have historical precedent, both in terms of deciding who will rule the Seven Kingdoms and also who will rule various components of it. Both the great councils that decided who the next Targaryen king would be at least twice in the past, and with vague inklings of other possible ones beside those, deciding how the Lannisters now ruled by an Andal line rather than a um, First Man line, deciding how the kings are decided among the Ironborn every time one dies. This has historical precedent, and it's fun to discuss some, some of the events that have happened in the past. That's option number two. Option number three, Bloodraven versus John. These two have very interestingly mirroring stories in terms of the decisions they've made and the ultimate resolutions of their character. Both in their, also go, even going back to their backgrounds, a bastard born and their imagery that they're affected with them. So it'd be an interesting comparison of where the two have gone and the similar mirror points in their stories. Uh, option number four, the edge of the world, sailing west. What is on the other side of the Sunset Sea, and who has attempted it previously? And option five, the white book. But I think we've really covered you know that book in terms of where it comes from and what it is. Okay, uh, so uh, I'm going to go with with two. Mm-hmm. Because we're we are starting to run long, um, let's do Hour of the Wolf. I think we need to address that one. And then I really like Blood Raven versus John. And you wouldn't have sold me on that one when we started the episode, but you've thrown in enough little things as we've gone that now that now I want to have the discussion. Sounds like a plan. All right. Uh, Shall I start? Which one would you prefer me to start with? Uh, Hour of the Wolf. Hour of the Wolf. Okay. Uh, We've heard previously that basically everyone is kind of vaguely terrified with the North and uncomfortable with them and doesn't know what they're fully capable of. In part because it is the, is that the North is as remote as it is and that it is maintaining a first men culture that a way that is foreign to most of the lords of the South. There are little persistences of first men and old gods worship, but most of the South is pretty uniformly in an Andal kind of culture. One of the other reasons, though, is the history of the North when it marches south is awesome and terrifying. <laughs> and that is the memories that, the, that people have when it comes to what the North and what the Starks are capable of when they get riled enough to march on the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. It hasn't happened often. It basically is the moment I'm going to tell you about and when Ned Stark and his host rode south for Robert's Rebellion. But it is the impression most of the world has, and it's for good reason, because good lord what Northmen are capable of when they get determined to do it. Going back basically about 170 years before our present moment, we go into the Dance of Dragons, the great Targaryen civil war between the Blacks and the Greens, as various forces supported Rana Targaryen, uh, and other ones supported her half-brother, uh, Aegon II. 
the, the, the blacks and the greens, respectively. Uh, quickly, Reyna realized that she was pretty heavily outnumbered and didn't have much in the way of support uh, structure to draw from. So she sent out her various prince sons to the various component lords of the Seven Kingdoms to try to rally their support. One of them wrote, flew up Dragon all the way to Winterfell to meet with uh, Cregan Stark, the uh, Lord of Winterfell at the time, to try to draw on his support. And they formed what was called the Pact of Ice and Fire, where essentially it was agreed that uh, a young Targaryen prince would princess would marry Cregan Stark's heir, I believe he was named Rickon, and that would form a connection between the families. And in return for that, the North agreed to lend its support. Problem was, the North was in the middle of a pretty severe winter, and winter in the North, as we saw, is a lot more severe and devastating than it is in the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. So Cregan Stark could not assemble his forces quickly, um, but he was able to send an initial force of pretty elite troops under one of his most powerful lords. Sir uh, Lord Roderick Dustin. Now, we don't see the Dustins on the show. They rule from Barrowmount, um, Barrowtown, which is one of the largest towns in the north. And they're one of the most powerful families. And those that we see in the books, uh, in terms of Lady Dustin, are impressive and interesting characters. Roderick Dustin's nickname is Roddy the Ruin. And he earns that nickname in fucking spades, in terms of what he and his 2,000-man force do as the foreguard of the Stark army that's eventually going to assemble in Mar March South. They, the 2,000 men who become known as the Winter Wolves, immediately just strike the, those of the South as being weird. They aren't an army by the standards of most of the, most of the Seven Kingdoms. They, don't have, they have mismatched gear. They don't have any common surcoats or common themes. They look haggard. They look shaggy. They ride tiny little, tiny little horses and have they do not fit the image of knights marching south to save the world. But good lord, could they fight and were they willing to do it. They quickly marched down to the Riverlands uh, to support forces of uh, Randa Targaryen the Blacks that were already being pretty badly pressed. Most of the Riverlords had supported the Black cause, but were assailed by forces marching out of the Westerlands, the Lannisters, as well as forces marching up from the Reach under the, under the high towers. The Riverlords were pretty heavily shattered, and it came to the 2000 Winter Wolves to afford a degree of solidity that brought them back together on the shores of the God's Eye. Roderick Dustin, capable commander, realized that if the Lannister forces were able to rally with the force of the Reach, uh, as well as the forces of the Targaryens themselves under the Green Banner that were marching north, there would be no hope for the Black Cause. They would simply fail. So he famously said, we need to finish the lines before the dragons get here. And at the Battle of the Lakeshore, the 2000 Winterwolves served as the core of the army with support what remained of the Riverlord forces. And their strategy was essentially, we have to break the Lannisters no matter the cost. And so this massive Lannister host assembled in, sh in spear wall, shield wall formation probably didn't expect these outnumbered force of Starks, of these northern forces, to just charge them. They hadn't encountered or fought Star northern forces in quite possibly hundreds or thousands of years before that. But good lord, did they get a showing of it on that field. As the Stark forces charged the Lannister shield wall six times, shattering themselves upon it to break through and kill the commanders and kill the officers and force the Lannister army to flight. In a way that not only permanently put the Lannister forces out of the Dance of Dragons, they didn't fight anymore against it, but they were so thoroughly devastated that the Ironborn started raiding their coast to a degree they were even able to kidnap Lannister daughters and make them sea wives. That's how devastated the Lannister army was as a result of what the Winter Wolves inflicted upon them. But as was typical of what, how Roddy the Ruin earned his name, 
Two-thirds of the Stark forces were killed or injured over the course of this battle at the lakeshore. This was a devastating battle, arguably the bloodiest battle of the war. And it was only defeating a portion of the green forces before the bulk of their army, under the reach of the actual Targaryens, with freaking dragons coming in, is now assembling and marching on the town of Tumbledown. Now, the Blacks are able to put together some more forces from the Riverlands, whatever else, and what remains of the Stark forces are there and ready to go. And once again, Roderick Dustin is a man with a plan and a willingness to execute it. In the Battle of Templedown, while the bulk of the Riverlords kind of keep the green forces in place, Roger Dustin and his Winter Wolves, riding their horses, go out of the back gate, ride around the Reach forces, and just charge them. Outnumbered by ten times, they just charge straight into the middle of the Reach host, with the sole objective being going straight for the High Tower Lords. They cut a path through them. They cut right through the bodyguard of the High Towers. High Towers are one of the most powerful kingdoms, in the, powerful houses in the Seven Kingdoms. But they were able to get in there, kill his bodyguard, kill the Lord of House Hightower and his son right there. Ooh. All of them die in the process. According to the historian accounts, Roderick Dustin was literally chopped to pieces but still kept coming. Drunk with battle, missing an arm. Literally, in his last act, essentially falling blade down on this Hightower heir to kill him as well. as Just a final act of defiance. This was the initial southern impression of what the north was capable of. And good lord, was that probably terrifying. Uh, incidentally, the Battle of Tumbledown really starts to then play out similar to what we just saw in the Sack of King's Landing, of where the northern forces and the Riverlord forces are winning. They're beating back the Greens. But the two betrayers, two dragon seeds that were service in Reyna's cause, then for, were never sure why, we're never sure what motivated them to switch sides, just burn the city down. They just start lancing through the streets, burning houses, burning people, burning troops, putting the Black Army into utter chaos and rout and retreat and winning the battle for the Greens. Because direct parallels to what Danny ends up doing in King's Landing, and that is a question that, similar to how we're never quite sure what her motivation was for that, we never really find out why the two betrayers did what they did, and we never will because they're pretty quickly killed off by really dedicated war lords willing to commit suicide to take them out. But anyway... The rebellion continues on, uh, the, the against dragons continues on, eventually Rana's forces are defeated, she is incinerated and eaten, but arguably alive, probably she died from the fire, by one of the last surviving dragons of Aegon II, as this crippled dragon incapable of flying sits next to its broken lord, broken Aegon II, who is so thoroughly broken and devastated and in pain that he really only can survive on constant sources of milk of the poppy, as basically what he's just constantly downing to keep something resembling functional through the pain that is his life. So there we dispel with the myth that Drogon didn't kill Jon because he has Targaryen blood. No, there and also throughout the Dance of Dragons, dragons killed dragons, dragons killed Targaryens. It yep. resulted in the end of the dragon bait, essentially the end of dragons as a force of power in the Targaryen reign. Within a few years of the, uh, who eventually, of Aegon III, who eventually takes over after uh, both his mother and Aegon II die, all the dragons are gone. He's known as the Dragon Bane for a reason. So thoroughly they devastated themselves. So as the bulk of House Targaryen died from inner, inner dragon combat before this war was done. So yeah, that theory's bunk. But, uh, news, this should be pretty much the end of the war. The Blacks have lost. But news comes down the pipeline that Cregan Stark and a northern host larger than anyone has ever seen or heard of before is marching south. Here we go. Essentially, Cregan Stark and, Star and various other houses of the North have decided that, okay, winter is upon us, and winter means death when it comes to the North. 
The Winter Wolves already went south as an elite band that fully expected there'd be a long winter and wanted to go south. Now we're essentially taking every soldier under arms, who's a second son, third son, whatever else, so we have fewer mouths to feed. This is an army we're fully expecting to not come back so that their families will be better off in, with what supplies they have in the middle of winter in the north. That's the scale of the force that they've brought south. And what remains of the Green Army is seeing this coming and basically all agree, <gasps> fuck, we can't fight this. There's no organized army left to prevent them. And so a collection of lords, 22 of them, I believe, essentially poison and arrange for the assassination of Aegon II. And open the gates of King's Landing to Creekon Stark saying, Hey, the war is done. The king's dead. We're on your side. Don't murder us all, please. Uh-oh. Creekon Stark, being the most Starky of Starks, uh, <laughs> essentially decides to do the most Stark thing he possibly can think of. In which case, he declares Aegon III. Well, it's already recognized. Aegon III, Reyna's son, is now king of Westeros because there's nobody else friggin' left. I'm going to be his hand, because no one can tell me no, and I'm going to arrange for the trials of everyone who just killed, or was part, took part in the killing of Aegon II. Sure, I came down here sworn to reign his banner, and probably they fully expected I would be rewarding them for ending the war and getting her son on the throne, but no, I'm a Stark, they just committed regicide, that's against the law, they get punished before I leave. This is called the Hour of the Wolf as a massive Stark host set outside King's Landing, with Cregan Stark as hand of the king, and no one able to tell him no for whatever he wanted to do. He, over the course of, I think it was three days, presided over 22 trials, personally, executed those that he'd found guilty that decided that they did not want to take the black, exiled those to the wall that otherwise agreed, decided to take that punishment, and ensured that all of the betrayers of Aegon II, the man that he had signed a solemn pact to oppose, were appropriately punished in terms of getting uh, justice for this act of regicide that was committed upon the realm. Uh, with there being no one essentially left to agree to the terms that had reasonably been agreed to the Pact of Ice and Fire, they were left with a bit of a loss as to what to give Creek and Stark to go away as he started issuing laws, issuing rules, everything else, presiding over what he wanted to accomplish within the set period. He eventually married a member of the Blackwood family who is a just utterly fascinating character that I wish we were able to get into in greater detail later. Maybe I'll save that for another episode. But Alvisane Blackwood would be someone that uh, Arya would have had a hell of a lot of fun with, in terms of hanging out with. But marries her, Blackwoods are connected to the Stark family forever in terms of setting up that line and connection, which again, to tie in a connection between um, Blood Raven and John here in our next part. And then he marches north, never returning back to the south again, um, leaving a large portion of his army behind that a large portion of those that marched south with Creek and Stark essentially stayed behind in the Seven Kingdoms because they come down here really to die. They come down here for an epic fight in the way the North is loving to do, and they didn't get it. They instead, rather than return home and be more mouths to feed for their families, back to the thing that they would avoid, a lot of them settled in the South, formed their own connections, formed their own workings and houses and bases in a way that still left a lasting influence on, this, on the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. And so I think you can really draw some very direct parallels between these events, not only in the threat that a northern army brings, regardless of its size and the minds of the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, but also the degree of influence they've had in the past when appropriately riled and marched to war. And I think that really resonates with what we saw from John marching his army to King's Landing and also what Sansa was representing in terms of, I get to dictate terms from a certain degree because my army is at the gates and I am here and I am powerful. 
Good work. I like it, Spencer. I like it. Um, I think it's a very clear parallel. Um, and I, I like when every once in a while the showrunners sort of fumble upon that, right? Yeah. Where they they actually do find a a plot point or you know a character or something that you can directly draw a line to the books. You say, okay, I, that's it. They've read the books. I get it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we see it very much here. And I think we see it very much on our next topic in terms of the comparison between um, Bride and Rivers and John, because there are just so many direct comparisons. I have a hard time believing that they weren't purposefully doing some before the end of this. Well, that's a little bit more tough for me, only because I didn't really see the parallels until you started talking. So that's a good lead in. Why don't you fire away with Brendan uh, Blood Raven Rivers and the comparisons with John Snow? Uh, shall we save the vote from Congress before uh, until the end? Do we have both options? Oh, we, no, you have been selected by a jury of your um, lords and ladies. <laughs> the great now, council has decided me. Yeah, you are you are now king. Uh, you pass these things with no vote. That's how we've ended up. I appreciate it, sir. Um, okay, Bryden Rivers. Let's just do a little bit of background on where he is, and let's see if we can start drawing some comparisons between him and John. Uh, Bryden Rivers was, for one, born a bastard, born a noble bastard of the Targaryens in the Blackwoods, of where his father, Aegon IV Targaryen, with his, I believe it was fifth or sixth, I think sixth mistress, uh, Melissa Blackwood, uh, produced Bryden. Now, the Blackwoods are, a, as we just said, a family that is closely linked with the Starks. They've had Stark connections both in bloodline and whatever else going back hundreds of years, particularly recently. Uh, and they also are one of the last families in the South, or one of the families we notably see in the South, that are a first-men family that very strongly adheres to the old gods, vehemently, in, in terms of the values that they maintain. So there's obvious connections there as well, as well as in terms of the bastard first-men slash Targaryen connection. Uh, Bread Rivers was uh, never a looker from day one, by most standards. He was born albino. A lot of people commented on his appearance and this kind of patch on his cheek that looks like a vague raven. But he was always very distinctly of having alabaster, pale white skin and red eyes, a certain comparison to uh, the image that we see of Ghost later on. Bryden Rivers was, um, being one of the royal bastards, was legitimized when Aegon IV decided that it would be a wonderful idea if on his deathbed he decided to legitimize all these other potential heirs to the throne rather than designate an obvious one. What a jerk. Uh, yeah, there's a reason they call him Aegon the Unworthy for, um, based on horrible decisions like this. Um, we can go into Bryden Rivers' background in terms of loving Cirrus Seastar, but I don't think it's relevant at this point. But one of the things that played out early on, and relatively early on in his life, was that he was forced to make a choice in terms of what side of his family he was going to defend. That when Damon um, Blackfire decided to lead the first Blackfire Rebellion, all of the various legitimized bastards had to decide what side of the fence they were going to support. While quite a few, including the famous Bittersteel, rallied behind Damon, Bryden decided that he was going to support the crown and uh, Darian Targaryen. And in the first Blackfire Rebellion, he played an integral role in ensuring what was going to be the, what he hoped, end of a potential Blackfire threat to the crown. At the Battle of the, Bloodgrass Fe- of the Redgrass Field, um, Bryden Rivers brought his own elite corps of longbowmen called the Raven's Teeth into play. And through a, what I have to believe was carefully arranged series of events, he played on the fact that Damon Blackfire was a very honorable man, and when he fought against Glen Corbray's forces and personally dueled him for an hour, Bryden Rivers calmly assumed high ground that was nearby and waited for his moment. And after Damon Blackfire won this personal duel, one of the most famous duels in all of the history of Westeros, 
He was in ideal position, not a couple hundred yards away, for Bryden Rivers and his longbowman under the Ravens' teeth to first hit Damon's son, which caused Damon to de uh, get off his horse and try to protect his son's body, and to hit Damon himself, and then hit Damon's other immediate oldest son, thereby effectively ending the immediate succession of the Blackfire line. Um, this was viewed as essentially an act of uh, kinslang, but potentially at least a necessary act at the time, given the minute of the open of war. It did also lead to the second most famous duel in the history of Westeros, of when, now, when the forces of the uh, Crown are being are rallying behind them, when an army of Dornish, which have recently become uh, members of the Seven Kingdoms, have assembled in the rear and are attacking the, the Blackfire forces' flanks, Bittersteel led what forces remained in an act of just blind, angry, suicidal charge into the middle of the Raven's Teeth, cutting a path personally to Bryden Rivers and ensuing an epic duel between the two of them, which we don't really know how it ended other than that Bittersteel got away and that, Bry that Bryden lost an eye. Uh, background, by the way, he's known as Blood Raven because of this weird blood march, bl um, this weird splotch on his, on his cheek that some people say resembles a raven. Um, after this, Bryden Rivers became Hand of the King and became famous as both a spy master and a peddler of magics and other evil things as he tried to bring a degree of control to what was an increasingly fractured Seven Kingdoms. That after this revolt, after a series of events, including the accidental murder of heirs, the spring sickness killing kings, and who eventually came to the throne not having a clear enough heir in place in terms of first uh, Aerys Targaryen, I believe Aerys I, uh, and then Makor, the, the, the son of uh, Egg and everybody else. None of them had a clear heir enough in place or enough, enough stability. But uh, Bitter, um, Bryden Rivers tried to bring a bit of peace to the realm through pretty much police state actions in terms of maintaining security by any means necessary. Uh, and as we see in Duncan Egg, quite literally wielding magic in terms of his efforts, it seems, to um, bring about the end of anyone who could potentially be a threat, putting about new Blackfire rebellions, whatever else. At the uh, end of Maycor, uh, when Maycor died, though, uh, he had no clear heir in place. His two oldest sons had died, one of quite, I believe, venereal disease, another one of, chug another one of chugging wildfire, really quality children that Maycor produced. Yikes. Um, we were left with what was viewed as the Great Council meeting to decide who would be the next lord and heir, of, next uh, king of the Seven Kingdoms, next heir to the throne. Because there was no clear line in place. There were a few bastard children. There were a few insane heirs of the older sons of Makor that had died. As for Makor's two other sons, one was a member of the Citadel and bookish and had no desire to take it, Avon Targaryen. And the other one, who would appear to be the obvious choice, Egg, had essentially been ruled... Been, had lived and lived among and grown among the peasants as part of his touring around with Dunk for the last years of his life. And so from respect to most of the lords, he was half a peasant and not worthy for the throne. So many options were laid out, so difficult was the debate as to who would rule. Greek council meetings take a long time because everyone has their own personal interest at play that one of the Blackfire heirs actually returned to Westeros to make his own claim to the throne because he had as legitimate an offering as anybody else to this. Bloodraven allowed him to come, swore him safe passage that he would be fine, that he would be allowed to make his claim and people would be able to vote on him same as anybody else. And then his ship arrived, he docked in the harbor, he walked ashore, and he was killed immediately in the streets. 
arranged by Bloodraven himself, with his head thrown before the lords of Westeros to essentially just say, here is, the, here is what I'm willing to bring to bear to ensure a proper succession occurs. Here is my stance of whether the Blackfires have any legitimacy to this throne, nor the, and the degree to which I'm going to allow any degree of rebellion to be tolerated or forgiven in terms of deciding who this new, new, new successor will be. The lords took this under advisement and promptly picked Egg as being Aegon V, the new king of Westeros. This act of essentially regicide was the basis by which Aegon then took the throne. And he was left with the decision of how that act should be treated or regarded. Having seen this, having decided that such an immoral act, even if arguably necessary, even if in his favor, could not be tolerated, uh, Braden Rivers was given was essentially decided that was going to be he was going to be exiled to the Wall with a great royal train going with him in terms of Amon also going to the Wall so that he would be no potential threat to his brother's claim to the throne and also the majority of the Ravens' teeth going with their lord in exile to the Wall and so Braden Rivers having just committed an act of regicide which people may have viewed as necessary and having an immediate relative now assume the throne by his direct will. Uh, is being exiled by that relative due to the insistence of various other lords that don't particularly like him, and is also a necessity act of maintaining stability in the realm. He goes to the Night's Watch. He, six years later, becomes Lord Commander. Uh, and some, I think, 15 years after that, he goes on a ranging north of the Wall and disappears and never returns. Only to us in the main series finding out that some 50 years later, he has somehow ended up half-grown into a weirwood tree as the last green seer, the three-eyed raven, three-eyed crow. So, as I've just set up in terms of explaining the background of this character, I think, and you would agree, there are some obvious, obvious parallels to draw. Uh, in terms of the bastard upbringing, the connections to House Targaryen, the white-on-red imagery, the connections to the Night's Watch, the disappearing north of the Wall, the willingness to commit acts of regicide to protect the realm, it is interesting to see that these characters have in some ways gone on similar arcs. Even as you noted, they, when they go north of the Wall, they even bring their own uh, Valerian steel swords with them in terms of um, Bloodraven quite possibly bringing um, Dark Sister, the blade of uh, Visenya Targaryen, it's just an ancestor with him, while Jon brings Longclaw, his own, Valerian store, uh, his own Valerian steel blade. So I find it fascinating, and I think it shows that, the book, that the, either this is connecting into George R. R. Martin's writing or just the runs of the show do really have a strong appreciation of the text and the backgrounds that go into it, that these two separate bastard characters that played such an integral role in deciding what the future of kings would be in Westeros really have same mirroring paths and seemingly same mirroring resolutions. I can't say for certainty whether John will someday grow into a tree, but I think it, would, it is possible and it would be a fascinating further end to his character. It would be a hell of a sequel. Yeah. All right. Well, good job. Um, this passes, obviously. You are king. <laughs> all right anything else you want to touch on no you know as said as many complaints or waffling as i have over the course of the show i i adore it and i adore the world that it has built and added to and i look forward to us finding further occasion to talk about it as the time goes on i agree um my favorite television show ever my favorite piece of fiction ever um is the world of ice and fire i just am entirely grateful for the show, for all of the connections I've been able to make, 
uh, through the stories. And I look forward to, like, like you say, I look forward to continue, continuing to do that, uh, first and foremost, at Con of Thrones in a couple months. Yeah, looking forward uh, to that. So that should be fun. We, we were joking on text about how we were going to have to basically bring Riot gear if we came in positive <laughs> about season eight. <laughs> Helmets and everything else. Yeah, which we're willing to do. I think we're going to go and defend season eight as much as we possibly can. Um, thank you for doing this with me, Spencer. I've enjoyed it. The Got Questions podcast is a wrap. Uh, we will be back probably um, at some point, but uh, all the more reason to subscribe. That way you'll know when we get new episodes. Until then, check out the rest of our content at MangumTalks.com. We have Whiskey in the Weekends. We have Mangum Laughs. We have Mangum Talks Hoops. We have Mangum Reads. Check it all out there at MangumTalks.com or iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, especially as we mentioned earlier in the pod about a new show. Uh, if you'd like us to review another show, something something else now that Game of Thrones is over, let us know that. Facebook.com slash Talks or MangumTalks.com, upper right-hand corner. Select Contact Us. Let us know. I will get that information. I will filter it. I will give it to Spencer. Spencer, thanks for doing this with me. Always a pleasure, sir. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you.